This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Uh, Kyler, welcome back to the show, as always. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We've got a great show for, planned for you today. Um, before we get started, though, just a reminder, every Wednesday, you can find new episodes on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter and Facebook. You can also find the audio versions of this podcast on all the audio podcast platforms like uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, etc. So be sure to subscribe to us, check us out there. And uh, just as a fun milestone before we get started, Kyler, uh, this is episode number 53, which means we've done a full 52 episodes or a full year worth of content. So this is uh, officially the start of our second full year of uh, doing this podcast. So uh, that's a pretty big milestone. So thank you for uh, being a part of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's been my absolute pleasure. Yeah, so we'll see if we can uh, continue to grow the audience and uh, the, even more reason for those of you listening to share this with others who may not be familiar with this podcast. We'd love to get the word out and love for you to share this content if you think it'd be helpful to anyone on your team or any of your uh, peers in the industry. Um, we've got a great show for you planned today. We've got, we're going to start off with some sort of hot topics and trends we're going to cover. We're going to cover a bunch of stuff in that segment. We'll cover uh, a recent acquisition from Microsoft. We're going to talk about the metaverse. We're going to talk about the transformation at McDonald's. So big brand, uh, consumer brand, global name that um, will be, take some lessons from their transformation. We'll talk a little bit about digital transformation, digital transformation and modernization. And we'll also see if I can uh, talk and get spit out my words uh, through this episode. It may be a very long episode based on how it's going so far, but we'll we'll see. So that that'll be the first segment. Is the the hot topics there. And then later in the show, we are going to have uh, Marcus Harris on the show. And he's someone who has been on the show, I think, two or three times before. Um, he's typically a keynote speaker at our Stratosphere event, which is a virtual event that we host each year. We're, we're going to talk more about that event because that's coming up very soon, February 8th through 10th, stratosphere2022.com. Um, I'll be there. Kyler will be there. Marcus will be there. A lot of other speakers will be there. Um, you can register for free. It's a virtual event, three-day event. Um, you'll get the recordings after the fact. So be sure to go to stratosphere2022.com um, to register, learn more, see the agenda, all that good stuff. So back to my original point, though, Marcus Harris, who will be at Stratosphere 2022. Um, he's going to be on the show, and he's an attorney that specializes in enterprise technology, software, and system integrator contracts and negotiations. He also does uh, a lot with failures and lawsuits. So whenever there's lawsuits, uh, he's oftentimes an attorney that gets hired to represent one of the two parties in a lawsuit. And in fact, that's how I know him is he's actually a client of ours. And he um, actually hired me to be an expert witness for either two or three of his cases in the past. And that's how we've gotten to know each other over the years. So Marcus is going to be on the show and we're going to talk about vendor contracts 
um, the whole procurement process, some of the things you should be thinking about upfront when you're first procuring software and some of the contractual pitfalls and the legal pitfalls, as well as things that you need to be aware of as you continue beyond the contract phase into implementation. So really good to get his perspective. He's always a great person to have on the show because he he doesn't speak like a normal attorney that's that's kind of up in the clouds speaking a lot of legalese. He's, he brings it down to earth to, to ways that I can understand and most others I think can understand too. So he'll be a great uh, person to have on the show. And then later in the show, uh, in the third segment, we are going to have uh, Adam Cheatham on the show. He, he and I co-presented a uh, presentation on executive strategy and how executive strategy aligns or ties into digital transformation. So we're going to play you that clip uh, later in the show as well. So be sure to stick around for the the uh, third segment as well. So all that being said, great show for you today. Uh, let's start off with the hot topics, though. What have you got for us here? It sounds like you've got a lot of good stuff for us here today, Kyler. Yeah, a lot of big movement on, you know, Fortune 100 um, brands here. So I want to start with McDonald's as they are undergoing a digital transformation as we speak. And it's a very interesting transformation. I want to share a quote from their global CIO, um, Daniel Henry. It says, while unwavering strategic investments benefit IT greatly, it's culture that Henry views as the group's real differentiator. And I just want to kind of get your reaction to that, Eric, because when I read it, that's not typically what you hear our CIOs say and really putting into, they call it a curious and creative culture um, at McDonald's. And that's how they feel as though they're going to be successful with this digital transformation. They don't even mention the software they're utilizing. Like we can guess, obviously, judging by their size. But I think that that's really interesting. And I, I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, that is fascinating. I, I hadn't heard that quote. And in fact, I did not know that McDonald's was going through a digital transformation, although they're such a big company, they might always be going through transformations. Um, but it, yeah, I think that's interesting. That is super fascinating, especially from a, coming from a CIO. I've heard CEOs or CFOs occasionally say that sort of thing as part of their transformation. But hearing it from the CIO is, is uh, refreshing in many ways. And it, it, especially today's day and age in that industry, especially where you have a lower wage, high turnover types of jobs where it's hard enough to get capital, human capital, to retain that human capital. Culture is going to be super critical for an organization like that, especially if you're going through a change. You've got to be very mindful of the culture. And it might be on one extreme or sort of an extreme example with McDonald's of why it's so important with, with lower wage, higher turnover types of employees, but any organization that's going through transformation should be thinking about culture if they're not already. So I'd say kudos to him for bringing that top of mind for for other peers that may not be thinking that way in terms of culture. Absolutely. They actually call it accelerating the arches, which I thought was pretty clever of a name um, of this kind of overall transformation program. And they really focus on not only culture, but attracting talent, which for in my experience in working with kind of these low wage front frontline workers, attrition is something that you just, you know, it's the way of life. And um, that's just kind of how the life cycle of the employee goes. You know, you might have them for six to nine months and, and you kind of have this training program that you know how to cycle through the business a little bit more. Almost like that Jeff Bezos strategy that we talked about, that's kind of like they want their frontline workers to go do something else because that gets them through kind of the life cycle of the employee. Um, and I just think that that's interesting because they're doing this future proofing strategy that makes them the exact opposite of that. 
they're looking for, they say smart people that love working with other smart people is their vision statement for that program. So I wondered if you could kind of give us your insight in working you know, with these bigger global businesses. Are you on side Bezos, Amazon, or are you on side McDonald's? Oh, yeah, gosh. It's a hard one, right? It is hard because I see the merits of both strategies and I think they're both extremely not clever. Clever is not the right word, um, but but just it can work really. I could see either either strategy working very well. I'd say I'm probably more on the on the McDonald's side. I mean, I, I don't know that I would necessarily because if I remember correctly, is it isn't the Jeff Bezos model that you're just kind of assuming that you're going to have a certain amount of attrition and you're just going to make it the best experience possible until they leave? Is that am I remembering? Yeah. That so right? they actually they and this we should be clear that when we talked about this in the last episode, this was pre-pandemic before kind of the labor shortage so i just want to make sure you know anyone that's gonna sound off in the comments like we we're we're not saying they do that anymore that just was a model that's very polar opposite to this one and they offered things like higher education or additional um, job training in other areas you know if you work in the warehouse and you want to be a nurse they will fund kind of part of that nursing training so that you can go out and do that and they kind of bring in a new fresh workload and they feel like that makes them most efficient as a business in that specific area, as opposed to McDonald's, which is really taking a top-down approach to not only their corporate culture, but also their frontline culture and trying to engage that, you know, quote unquote, typical uh, high attrition worker into kind of their overall cultural strategy and making them stay. Yeah. So I'd say they're both, I mean, I'd say the commonality or the thing that I'd gravitate to is the fact that in both cases, they have deliberately focused on or defined or articulated a culture that they want to be that aligns with what whatever their goals are. So I think that's more important than whether or not the Amazon answer or the McDonald's answer is the right one, as long as you're, as long as they're aligned, which it sounds like they both are with their, you know, higher level goals and objectives and strategies as an organization. I think that's more important than whether or not you know, one model is better than the other. How's well, that for control that is, Yeah, right. That's very <laughs> political. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, definitely both interesting um, pieces, but I do think that that McDonald's transformation will continue to learn more about that because they really do focus on the core customer experience, developing their human capital management through talent acquisition and retention and then also on data-driven outcomes, which has been three of the main trends that we've covered on this podcast for 2022. So it, it will be an interesting case study to continue to follow their progress and, and what the, what we can garner as best practices from them. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I'd love to hear more about it too as it, as it evolves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to get um, a cheeseburger, as my son says, every time we pass that um, next time and some fries and really dig into it. <laughs> right. See what this transformation is really all about. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of big tech, um, Microsoft recently acquired Activision, which is a gaming company. So things like Call of Duty, Call of Duty World of Warcraft um, and that acquisition was a huge, huge price tag at um, $69 billion. And that when Microsoft, just to put it in perspective, acquired LinkedIn, they paid $26 billion. So to just kind of put that in perspective, I thought that was an interesting um, 
just overall how big of an acquisition this is. And many people speculate it's because they're working to develop the metaverse, which we've talked about kind of conceptually because nobody really understands what that is um, on this podcast. We've also seen Facebook change its name to Meta uh, in kind of going towards that. And the argument of, of big speculation is that really the metaverse right now kind of has an established model of virtual reality in the gaming world. So take Fortnite, for example, you can go out and create your avatar. You can buy your avatar clothes. You know, there is a, a total e-commerce model kind of living within the, the metaverse. And we've seen big tech buy up these companies. And, and the thought here is they're going to actually establish what the metaverse becomes because of their overall capital investment in that. And since you, you know you are, you obviously know what can happen when big companies or big tech kind of put their hands in emerging technologies and what can come from that. I wondered if you could kind of give us your feedback in this is an emerging technology that was kind of in the gaming world and is coming more mainstream specifically because of COVID-19 and people not being able to physically go places. What, what are some of the risks of big tech kind of owning this space? Well, I think a uh, couple things. Um, before I answer that, though, I have to I have to get this out. So and it kind of connects the dots back to the McDonald's versus Amazon cultural question. Um, when you, I had forgotten that, that Microsoft recently bought Activision. Um, I remember reading it, but I, I forgot until you brought it up just now. But one of the things that uh, strikes me as speaking of culture is from what I understand, just what I've read in the news um, I think Activision has a lot of cultural issues. I think they've had a lot of uh, management turnover due to sexual harassment claims, if I remember correctly. I, I think there's some sort of controversy at Activision, and I'm pretty sure it, it's related to sexual harassment. But the reason I bring that up is not to bash Activision by any means, but but just to go back to a data point I think we've talked about in this show in the past, which is that 80% or more of mergers and acquisitions fail. And the number one reason why is because of cultural misalignment. So I, I do question... Yeah, you know, it's kind of a red flag to me. Is that a, is that a good cultural fit between Microsoft and Activision? Is Activision too much of a mess culturally to integrate with Microsoft, or maybe Microsoft's just so big that they can kind of swallow it up and change that culture um, that they have? But back to your original uh, question, I think that, that yeah, there, I think there's risk when you have a, a small group, a relatively small group of companies like uh, Microsoft and Facebook and others that are creating and sort of owning and dominating a certain new emerging technology. And it, it sort of limits the participation or the vo the alternate voices or the diversity of voices in the world that could contribute to that. Now, it's not to say that they won't eventually open it up and it won't eventually become sort of a more of a democracy or whatever you want to call it. But I think there's always a risk anytime you have such a heavy concentration with really big companies owning and managing and controlling and creating um, something like the metaverse. Um, so what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, definitely. And and just to clarify, um, so it was the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing that actually sued Activision Blizzard for constant sexual harassment. So you're right about that. And they reached an $18 million settlement, which is huge, right? Um, and they actually exited four of 40 of their leadership teams. So that's kind of just the background there. And, and I think we've seen I think the thing that I think um, is just the overall controllables on the consumer side and our understanding, we're about to talk about modernization, but it seems as though tech has, has accelerated our ability 
from a social standpoint to understand the impact of that acceleration. So for example, the United States election in 2016, um, arguably that we had some Russian interference when it came to Facebook ads, and those were pumping and essentially affecting people's perception of who to vote for. And we really haven't been able to get to the bottom of that, just like other worldly cyber attacks that we really haven't understood. So I think the thing that's hard about that is these big machines are going into this to look to make money and almost manipulate the average consumer. Um, so I think we just have to figure out one, how do we legislate it, right? Like is Facebook responsible for all of the things that they send our young people when it comes to mental health or is that freedom of speech specifically in the US? We know like Germany, for example, has put legislation in their overall culture to say you cannot do that or you cannot offer all of these different ads to our consumers. But many countries around the world, especially large ones, have a hard time understanding what that impact should be. So I think things like the metaverse or these emerging technologies, we're really going to have to figure out what is their impact on human behavior, especially when we know they're being run by big biz big businesses. Yeah, that's that's well put. And I think that it'll probably be one of those things that governments throughout the world end up regulating or legislating in some way. So it's a good, it's a good point. Yeah. And I think that's a good um, kind of why digital transformation is critical to accel accelerating monitoring modernization excuse me i'm like your word jumbling is contagious right right yeah right and and i think we're going to talk a little bit about this with marcus is sometimes technology sprints and human nature is still kind of strolling if you will um but in this article specifically and in the research i did it kind of talked about the different bigger buckets in which we're looking at the modernization and the simulation of technology into everyday life. Like, so for example, one of these trends is changing consumer trends. Obviously we know we're going to a more remote consumption model. Um, and, it, and this one talks about smartphone saturation, which is more than 72.7% globally. Um, that's what that's, that looks like. And then three quarters of Americans have a mobile device that they utilize to check their a bank account. Um, so 70% of millennials and then almost 90% of Gen Z utilize that as kind of their, their consumer behavior. So we talked a little bit about the forced transformation of banking specifically and having to modernize into kind of that more technological ecosystem, which now has gone from a nice to have feature to in order to be competitive in the marketplace, you absolutely need to have that. And that leads to things like smart ATMs being hacked and spitting out money, you know, in city streets. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things like this technology is great, but are we from a, a security and overall infrastructure standpoint ready for it? Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And, and we've talked about cybersecurity on the show quite a bit over the past year. And that does raise the question of how secure is that and what can you do to tighten up that security? What what do banking organizations need to do to, to tighten up the security? We talked about that, I think, a couple of episodes ago when we talked about banking in the cloud. So really good points. Yeah. So I, I wonder how, you know, you can answer this huge philosophical question for us, Eric, and just solve all of our problems. But <laughs> That's what the show's for. <laughs> how, yeah, right. 
How from a business standpoint, um, can you make sure that technology is not completely overwhelming your business model and taking you in a different direction that say maybe you're not ready for things like AI or maybe you don't have business processes that's going to make something like predictive analytics actually valuable for you. How do you, how do you stay grounded in uh, an, you know, an overall ecosystem where there's a bunch of emerging technologies kind of flying at you or software vendors are saying like, this is the latest and greatest. How do you stay grounded to your core business needs and values? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is to have a deliberate um, and objective understanding and a realistic understanding of your level of current technological maturity. Um, so there's not, you know, some companies are just more advanced than others as it relates to technology. Some are already on more modern ERP systems. And so making the leap to AI and machine learning and metaverse type stuff, not not that that's really a business thing yet, but as it does become a business option, who knows? But you know, that's going to be more realistic for that kind of company versus a lot of clients we work with are still working off of green screens, you know, AS400 based homegrown green screen types of systems. And that company is going to have to take a much bigger leap if they're going to go look at AI and cloud and um, predictive analytics and all that kind of stuff. Not to say they can't do it, but it's it's higher risk. It's going to take longer. It's going to cost more. And, um, you know, they may or may not be able to actually go through that transition. And in those cases, it may be perfectly fine to say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to take more of an incremental approach to deploy new technologies until we get to a certain amount of maturity. Then we'll take that next level or take that next jump. So I think you just have to be deliberate about where you are um, as an organization, where you want to get to. And then ultimately, how does that affect your overall strategy and plan and, and the risk profile? Absolutely. I think that that is something that is so key to this conversation and a great theme for this podcast, because I know you sprinkle it in a little bit with Marcus and then specifically in your executive summary with Adam, um, you talk about how important that is to really understand your strategy and stick to it. You know, we can be flexible to an extent, but not in the in the in the fact that it's going to put our business at risk. So I, I have a burning question that I wanted to ask you while I was reading this and and just, you know, from your overall being a thought leader in the industry, do you ever think that there's a part of our life that will not involve technology? <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe as a backlash to technology, I could see, um, you know, for example, a few weeks ago, I, I forgot my phone. Um, I was out and about and forgot my phone for several hours. And it was at first very stressful, but then it became the most glorious thing. I didn't have to worry about I didn't have the anxiety of, did I miss a call? You know, what am I missing at work on my emails? Um, I just didn't have my phone. It was great. So I could see organizations or, or people, I should say, maybe having a, a backlash sort of reaction like that. But I don't know that there's any getting away from the fact that technology is just continuing to permeate further and further uh, into our lives, whether we, whether we like it or not. So it's just a matter of setting those boundaries, which we struggle with uh, as parents. I don't know about you and, and Adam or you and your husband. Um, but my wife and I struggle with the right balance with our kids. You know, how much technology should they really be exposed to? Um, and I don't have a good answer for that. And I don't have a good answer for that for myself either, for other, you know, other adults in the world. No, definitely. I love unplugged time. I just, you know, I have this crazy boss that's just all over me all the time. <laughs> and, you know, repeat calls. You send an email late at night and stuff like that. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm totally joking. Um, but, 
Okay, I just thought it was interesting, right? <laughs> I thought it was interesting because this modernization article talked about the pandemic and the different industries that have been affected by that. Obviously, we talk about supply chain. That's been one of the main topics that we've gone over and something we'll talk about digital stratosphere, labor shortage. And we've seen the automation and kind of the futuristic view of how you take away frontline labor or optimize it so that not only it's less, less human contact, but also more efficient in the way that you operate as a frontline workforce. And the last the last trend they focused on was childcare. And that's the one that I just don't know. <laughs> like, would I love a robot to make dinner um, for my family? And, you know, it all be like a smart kitchen um, type of thing. Absolutely. But I don't know how technology would ever solve maybe a childcare saturation issue um, in where we, we have literal people that cannot go to their job because of childcare challenges. So that was the one that kind of struck me is like, I could see it kind of trickling into every other piece of our life, but I don't know if I could see it with that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why I just thought of this, but as you were saying that it reminded me of, I don't know if you, did you ever see the movie um, Rocky four? The one where he fights the Russian, um, Oh, it's, it's you're too young. You 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 you, uh, you millennials these days. You, you don't know the good movies when they uh, the Rocky. classic good movies. Did you say Rocky Four? Is there four versions of Rocky? Like, oh, is there... oh gosh, wait. How much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's more than four Rockies. There's actually like five or six. Yeah. And then, then there's a whole spinoff with Creed, which is. Um, I knew that part. I Apollo just did Creed. not know we got to Rocky Four. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's arguably the best one. It's the one where. Okay. So, so just a quick overview, it's it's set, you know, it's the fourth one. So this is probably the mid 80s, maybe the late 80s it came out. And uh, robots were just sort of like becoming a real thing, but at a, at a very rudimentary level. But in Rocky Four, this is the one where he goes in, uh, for those that have seen the Rocky series, it's the one where he has to go to Russia to fight this, you know, big, huge Russian dude on steroids on Christmas Day. Um, and he, and so Rocky has to go to Russia and train in the snow with, carrying rocks and stuff. Uh, anyway, I, I digress. But the the whole uh, reason I brought it up is because in the movie, you know, he's by this point, Rocky Four, he's he's been a world champion and he's made a lot of money and he lives in a big house and he buys his son a robot and the robot like brings drinks, I think in the show, like you can, you could say, you know, bring me a beer or whatever his uncle said, bring me a beer. And the, you know, the robot stumbles around and drops the beer and stuff. So it's kind of, it reminds me of how yeah, you could get a robot to do childcare or cooking or something like that, but it's probably going to be pretty, pretty messy uh, to start. And there's going to be a lot of testing that's going to need to happen to make that, to make that feasible. So anyway, Absolutely. how we went from, from what you were talking about to Rocky Four back, I'm not sure, but that's the way my brain's working here today. Yeah. Well, you know, my one-year-old can get any video from my phone onto the TV and I literally have no idea how she does that. And I'm like, I work for a tech Business. And I cannot figure out every single time how she does it. And I'm sure, you know, someone can tell me how that works and um, that type of thing. But I think we have a very technology um, saturated generation. Obviously, we know that um, there's just some pieces that I'm like, you know, you could talk about the basic needs of life shelter. You know, we can we can we now can buy a home from our computer. We have an algorithm that feeds us all of these homes that we'd like or showcases areas in which we should live. And for food, we can have groceries delivered to our door, no problem, you know, through technology platforms. But when it comes to safety, 
that can go a variety of different ways. But when you talk about, you know, fam that nuclear family safety, you wonder, like, how can how can that be so vulnerable technology that it would be involved in something so, you know, sacred as caring for children? But yeah. just, you know, a kind of a an interesting piece of when we talk about modernization, is anything untouchable, you know? Yeah, what are our uh, limitations, or not our limitations, but what are what's our uh, what are like our boundaries? Borders? Yeah, boundaries. Yeah. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, yeah that's a good point because there's certain things like that. You, it may be that you, we just need to lag a little bit in technology adoption, and that's okay. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a good segue as you know we got deep there for a minute to Marcus to take us back to reality. Yes, and again, um, Marcus is such an excellent stakeholder, and Taft Law is a main sponsor as they have been in years past for our digital digital stratosphere event on February eighth through tenth. Um, which the registration information is all in the description copy below. And then also you can go to stratosphere2022.com to register. Marcus will be a keynote there. So I think this is an excellent preview to some of the stuff that we can talk about. And so I would I would highly recommend taking a listen because he he does not sound like a lawyer to your your point. Like if you met him on the street or heard his content anywhere else, you wouldn't think, oh, this is this is a lawyer. He definitely has such a great kind of bird's eye view insight into the overall digital transformation process. So I'm really excited to kind of unpack that with you um, after we hear from Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. And he's he's uh, he's an attorney that works for a law practice now, but he used to work um, as an attorney, the internal general counsel for um too big, I think it was two different uh, big ERP vendors. So he's, he sort of knows how it works on the other side of the table. And now he's on, you know, working for a law firm in private practice, helping clients with their negotiation process. And he also helps with, with failures and lawsuits when, when those arise as well. So he, he always has a good perspective and he's a very, uh, in my opinion, a, a very personable guy. And not that, yeah, I don't want to say most attorneys aren't, but you know, not all attorneys are fun to talk to, but he is. Uh, he's a really good guy. So I'm excited to have him on the show. We'll have Marcus Harris on. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control with Marcus and other guests. So stay tuned. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team, will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D, Stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, among others. Um, you can also find this podcast every Wednesday with new episodes on all the audio podcast platforms, too. So whether you're listening on Apple Music or Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, be sure to check out this podcast and subscribe to it. Share it with others. Give us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Um, I'm excited for our next guest who's been on the show before, and I always learn something new every time he's here and always enjoy talking to him. This this is uh, Marcus Harris, who is an attorney at Taft Law, which is a midsize uh, law firm here in the United States. And uh, as I mentioned right before the break, um, this guest also used to work for um, software vendors. He used to be the internal general counsel for some of the larger software vendors. And so he's sort of seen both sides of the, uh, the legal equation as it relates to digital transformations, enterprise technologies and whatnot. So he always has a, a, a wealth of information to share with us. Um, so with all that being said, Marcus, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me again, Eric. I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm excited to, to share you know some of my knowledge from the legal side of these transactions with the audience today. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of where we wanted to, to hone in here today is sort of that upfront procurement and just the overall legal strategy, the contract and legal strategies um, as it relates to not only procuring software and services up front, but also on, on an ongoing basis too. How do you manage to those contracts and mitigate risks, both from a legal and a uh, just more of a general implementation perspective? Um, but before we jump into some of the questions I've got for you and whatever questions the audience has here, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what, what have you done in your career and where do you work? All that good stuff. Yeah, I've got about 20 years of experience in this space. Um, in, in when I say this space, what I mean specifically is drafting and negotiating, litigating ERP related contracts and, and projects. So, you know, anything from software development agreements, MSAs, consulting agreements, statements of work, licenses, um, SAS agreements, cybersecurity, DPAs, all of that kind of is in that that bundle um, that, that it's all related to the implementation, design, um, integration of large software systems for larger enterprises. And really, I focus on, on two areas. And, and you know, the, the first one is, like I said, drafting and negotiating these types of agreements. So it's really getting in there with, you know, large clients, SAP, Infor, Oracle, um, going, you know, toe to toe in a drawn out negotiation process or a quick one. Um, and then, you know, God forbid this were to happen to any of the people listening today, but, you know, a failed implementation project, taking that um, where it needs to be to get it resolved, whether that's mediation, arbitration, or as you know, Eric, litigation um, in, in, you know, using all the skill sets that we have as lawyers to, to, to you know, help our clients recover uh, from the damages that they incur from a failed implementation project. Sure. Yeah, and it's probably worth noting that's how you and I first met or know each other is from uh, past litigation involving vendors and system integrators where you've you've uh, hired me to be an expert witness for for those cases. That's sort of how you and I first first met as a, as a client uh, consultant relationship. Yeah, that's exactly how it was, and it was an interesting case many many years ago. And we continue to do that, um, have interesting cases, and, and tap you as necessary if, if there's an opportunity that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully the audience here today doesn't ever need you for those services. But certainly, if they do have a failure, they they know who to reach out to, uh, it, and that you can help. That. But kind of uh, moving to the to the front end here of of transformation and sort of 
setting the tone for it for a transformation I, I guess just to set the context for some of the questions i'll ask you is it seems like there's so many decisions and um criteria and parameters that get defined from a legal perspective but also just from a pure delivery and execution perspective up front during this whole contract you know, vendor contract procurement process but i think a lot of organizations don't really know what to look for what the risks are what the pitfalls are but it's so important because you're, you're sort of baking in what the project is going to be you're setting the trajectory you're, you're setting parameters for yourselves for your vendors all that stuff and so i maybe maybe just to start if you could um before i jump into my my real questions is yeah. maybe just explain to the audience if you don't mind like why why is this so important this whole upfront piece of uh you know piece of vendor contracts procurement all that stuff yeah well i think i think you touched on it you know really what you're doing through the contract negotiation process and putting the contract in place is you're really setting the tone for you know how the relationship is going to fold out for the life cycle of of the implementation project so and really beyond right so any kind of maintenance support licensing whatever it is it's all going to be governed by the contract that you negotiate on the front end the ideal scenario is to you know have a contract that reasonably anticipates everything that can happen during that relationship and spells out you know, a process for dealing with whatever issue happens to arise. It's, it's, you know, that's, a, that's a tall order because I don't think anybody can look into a crystal ball and anticipate everything that's going to possibly happen in the future. But you know, with experienced counsel, experienced consultants, people that have been th through this a few times, you're, you're gonna set yourself up for you know, a, a pretty good chance of success if you, if you, you know, do the front end work by anticipating all the things where this thing can go sideways, have a contractual process, from mitigating the likelihood it's going to happen at all, and when it does happen, know exactly you know what the process is to deal with it when it arises. You know, my my goal is not to not to. And this may sound surprising. It's not to put in place an ironclad contract, and there's one reason for that. Really, is that you know I can do that all day, but no one's going to sign it, right? And especially not an experienced software vendor. Right. They're going to just walk away and say your your expectations are unreasonable. The goal is to put a contract in place that defines the relationship it you know makes reasonable concessions on on both sides it doesn't shift the entirety of the risk of the transaction to one side or the other it kind of balances it out in a reasonable way and ultimately you know you should be as the business owner um, the customer in a position where you know something goes wrong you pull that contract out from your desk drawer and you say oh look you know uh, on page 7 paragraph 3 we anticipated this would happen and this is exactly what the vendor's supposed to do and you know they're going to give you a hard time and say no we don't want to do that that's not how things work and you say no you know here, here's here's exactly what's going to happen that's the goal that's a successful contract process right there you know that's that's the the end result that you want to have ideally it's kind of removing that ambiguity making things predictable having a clear you know having those clear parameters or guardrails in place for the for the overall project yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, you know, what what you're doing during a contract negotiation, it's it's really not from the legal perspective. It's not, you know, I I don't I'm not concerned with the price, right? That's that's what people hire you for. That's what there's other consultants that can say, look, you're not getting a good deal. Attorneys aren't really focused on you know the, the financial aspects of the deal. I can kind of tell just because I've done it a lot of times. If you know, list price doesn't mean anything to me, right? It doesn't mean anything to anybody. You get an eighty percent discount off list rate, you know. Not, right. It's not because you negotiated something strongly. It's just you know, list price is illusory. Um, right. But it, it really is, you know, to, to put in place a contract that 
sets you up for success by governing the relationship, right? Um, you know, you have you, you never have as much leverage in that relationship as you do before you sign on the dotted line, and you've got to use that that leverage in a way that makes sense for you. And and really, it's all about risk mitigation. And you know, you've got to you've got to ask the tough questions. You've got to make sure that everything is discussed pre prior to signing, um, so that you can see where you know how far apart you are. We talk about functionality gaps, but there's gaps in perception and gaps about, you know, expectations. And you want to minimize the likelihood of those coming to bite you in the rear end later. And the only way to do that is through a thorough negotiation process. Right. Right. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, so when we think about, um, you've been doing this a long time and, and for decades now, and now we're in a new year, 2022 is upon us. A lot of, a lot of organizations are sort of looking forward to you know, what are, what are our contracts going to look like? How are we going to negotiate with our vendors? What vendors are we going to bring on board and whatnot? Um, but what, some of, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the market? You know, what, what's changed from a contractual or procurement or negotiation perspective? Or what is changing? What do you expect to change here in the new year or in the coming years? You know, one of the things that we continue to see as a focus of contracts is, you know, this whole issue around data security, cybersecurity, uh, data integrity, who's accessing your data, you know, do you need a DPA, a data processing agreement? Um, you know, and it depends. You know, the compliance with you know the new data privacy laws that have been put in place over the last five years or so. You know, it, it, it's a patchwork, excuse me, a, a patchwork quilt. You know, of regulations and laws. I'm just trying to navigate that and figure out you know what your what your issues are and what they aren't, um, and what your obligations are. It's 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 incredibly challenging. You know, I was on the phone yesterday with um, an actual NFL team that's entering into a large ERP transaction and data privacy uh, about, you know, with respect to the protection of, of the personally identifiable information of their fans was incredibly important. And, you know, it, it's trying to put standard DPAs in place with them, understanding what their risks are, how to mitigate those risks and, and what the compliance framework is, you know, what, what's actually applicable to them as a processor or a controller. You know, so right. that's, I think, going to continue to be substantive over the next 12 months and, and beyond. Um, you know, so you've got to have strategies for understanding, you know, how to mitigate those risks, what your obligations are and what you can you know, reasonably hold your vendor's feet to the fire uh, for. The other thing that we're seeing um, on, on a pretty consistent basis is vendor inflexibility with respect to negotiation. It just, you know, you try, you try negotiating with Oracle, you know, and it's just, you're getting the stiff arm, you know, every which way. It's just, there's not a lot of flexibility. And I think, you know, it depends certainly on how much money you're spending, um, what kind of market you're in. I mean, if you're in a strategic market for them, you're a newer customer, they really want to get an inroad into the industry that you're in. Um, you know, maybe you have more leverage, even though you're not spending as much money, but, you know, always, you're spending, you're spending multi-millions of dollars, you know, things get a lot easier as far as concessions. You're spending, you know, under a million, you know, good luck, right? You're not, you're not really gonna get a lot of concessions for them. One of the other things we see with respect to Oracle in particular is really the push, and it's a continued push to try to finance these lower money deals. Um, and that's almost always a mistake from a, from a customer perspective because you, you really take away a lot of flexibility if something goes wrong. Um, if you finance the deal through, you know, Oracle's financing arm and you want to hold back payments, um, you don't have the ability to do that necessarily. 
uh, because there's an acceleration clause in those agreements where everything comes due at once and they hold that over your head and it, it becomes very challenging. Those are some of the trends that we're seeing. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's more granular things that we can talk about as far as, you know, specific techniques for negotiating, you know, indemnity and limitations of liability and super caps and that kind of thing. Um, but from a, you know, with a broad brush, that's really kind of where, where I see uh, the market going or where it's, where it has been and where it's going to continue to go. So why do you think that is that some of the vendors are demonstrating this inflexibility? Is it, is it because of cloud solutions are more of a cookie cutter ish sort of deployment or, or approach, or is it just that you've got bigger vendors now that are more, you know, more active or what, what do you think is driving that? Well, I, I think it's kind of both. I mean, I think, you know, they're, they're really incented to get these deals done quickly. Right. And a long drawn out negotiation process doesn't serve that need. They're really going into kind of the SMB space. You look at Oracle with NetSuite, you know, those are smaller deals. And so you know, their desire to negotiate a smaller deal is just gone. Um, and the mantra that they keep you know, repeating is, look, this is a cookie cutter cloud solution. Everybody gets the same thing and you don't need to negotiate it because, you know, we just, we're, it, everybody gets the same. Our business model doesn't really, you know, support kind of these one-off concessions. And that's, that's not really true. Okay. Um, first of all, you know, everything's negotiable. Um, it just depends, you know, on what kind of leverage you have and, and how much they care about that customer relationship. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it really is something that you've got to deal with and you've got to, you've got to have experienced attorneys on your side and experienced consultants that know, you know, what's a reasonable ask right now in this environment? What can you get? You know, what's important? I mean, you don't, you don't want to spend, you know, time and money negotiating things um, negotiating for contingencies that are very unlikely to happen, right? I mean, you want to get the most bang for your buck out of your contract negotiation with the goal of mitigating risk. And, you know, if you're only going to get, you know, five things, you know, make them count, right? Uh, right. So, yeah, that's, but to answer your question specifically, because I'm not sure I have, is I think it's the, it's the size of the deals, right? It's this cookie cutter approach to these transactions. Um, and, you know, it's leverage, Basically, if you don't have leverage, there's no incentive for them to, to make any kind of serious concession. Their excuse is, you know, it's a cookie cutter transaction. It's a SaaS transaction. You're in the cloud. It's a, it's a single offering to all of our customer base and there can't be any one offs. That That's the push. But, you know, a lot of that's not really true. So, Right. All right. Thanks very much, Marcus. We're going to take a quick break and continue this conversation. When we come back, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. 
We're in the middle of an interview with Marcus Harris. Uh, as a reminder, be sure to check out new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as any of the audio podcast platforms you listen to. Uh, let's cut back to the conversation. Yeah, and just a uh, that's really interesting. And just a quick note uh, for turning our turning to the audience here um, on the live stream, we've got people from all over the world. We've got uh, just a few examples of people joining here from UK, Ukraine, um, El Salvador, Dubai. Kuwait, um, among others. So uh, as we're talking here today, I'd be curious to hear from this global audience, you know, both Marcus and I are based in the United States, but I'd be curious to hear if some of these trends we're talking about are are true in your regions, or if there's things that are unique that you're seeing in your region, your part of the world from a legal or contract or just a vendor behavior uh, sort of perspective, because that's a lot of what we'll, we'll, we'll cover here today. Um, so I guess, um, you know, one one follow up question there I'll ask then is related to to the the whole inflexibility thread is do you see are there certain vendors that you work with or that you negotiate on behalf of or interact with um, or negotiate with I should say you don't negotiate on behalf of the vendors typically usually it's the, the customers I believe that right. are hiring you is that correct it, it goes both ways but yeah I mean yep. it seems about eighty percent of our business is really focused on customers rather than vendors okay so when they're when your customers are hiring you to help do deal with these contracts are there certain vendors and you don't have to necessarily name vendors if you don't want to specific ones but are there certain ones that are um easier to work with than others or is it sort of kind of a universal issue that you see across the board with that inflexibility and some of the challenges you've pointed out it it, it really it really is vendor specific it's not it's not kind of a one one size fits all kind of situation and i'll i'm happy to name them because it, it, they frustrate me to no end right um <laughs> the, in, the the most inflexible vendor um, that I've dealt with in the past 12 months is Microsoft, okay? It was a large spend. Microsoft essentially told us to pound sand. We spent a, an a inordinate amount of time going back and forth with them. In the end, we were only able to get, you know, very few concessions. Um, a lot of time and a lot of money was was essentially spent um, on that negotiation. In the end, um, you know, they, they ran it up the flagpole multiple times and they just weren't willing to move. Uh, you know, again, it was a larger deal, but it was a larger deal kind of in the mid-market, and maybe that's the reason. Um, so I'd say Microsoft is, is typically less willing to be flexible. Oracle is notoriously difficult. Um, if you if you are spending you know, a, a large amount of money with them, they're certainly going to come to the table. But if you're spending anything under a million dollars, or even you know not much more than a million dollars, I don't think you're going to have a lot of leverage and a lot of success getting you know a ton of concessions from them. SAP is generally willing to work with you. They're usually flexible. Um, they're uh, just kind of practical in the way they approach things. Their legal counsel is usually very reasonable. Um, Infor is kind of in between. Um, they're certainly not as bad as Microsoft and Oracle. They're not nearly as flexible as, as SAP is. Right. So, so you, just, you mentioned you mentioned that if you're not spending more than a say a million U.S. dollars on a, on a deal, it's going to be hard to get a lot of attention from some of those vendors that you just mentioned. What about the some of the smaller you know industry niche or best of breed side, types of solutions that maybe aren't as big of vendors, but they're um, you know so maybe in other words, let me rephrase the question: Do you do you have as a customer do you have more leverage in negotiations with a smaller or mid tier vendor versus one of the big ones like you mentioned, like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft? Well, I'll give you the classic lawyer answer, right? It depends, okay? Right. <laughs> um, it really it depends on um, the company. It depends on the niche. It depends on the type of solution that that you're that you're uh, purchasing. So, you know, if it's if it's a very narrow niche product, 
um, you know, single sign-on security or something like that, you may not have that much leverage, and they might be really telling the truth that you know you're spending sixty grand on this, and they're not they're not going to really move on you know concessions and negotiation. It just doesn't it doesn't it eats up into their profit margin too much. You know, they don't want to spend you know months negotiating something that they're only going to get hundred k on, right? Um, but if you know if if it's a maybe a third tier ERP vendor. Um, they may be more willing, you know, to negotiate with you because the million dollars that you're spending with them means a lot more to them than it does to SAP, right? So if you're a you're a big fish in a small pond, and they're going to do everything they can to get you know get your business. Um, and you, you know sometimes you don't know until you kind of get into the negotiation which way it's going to go. But I'd say, you know, kind of general you know ERP providers are going to be more flexible than than narrow niche providers. So, um, and the other thing to think about too is services, you know, consulting agreements, MSAs, professional services agreements, whatever you want to call them, those are always uh, easier to negotiate than, than the software contracts themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, and speaking of that, um, speaking of SI or sort of non-software contracts, I want to pull a, a question from the audience and it's, it's a long question. It doesn't, the entirety of it doesn't show here but this is from Gassan on LinkedIn. And he talks about, um, it's, a, it's a long question, like I said, it's not mentioned here, but basically he's talking about how he they reached, a, he, he in a previous life or a previous negotiation, reached a stalemate with an SI for um, which country will be used for arbitration. So it's a multinational deployment um, with an SI with multiple offices. This sounds like this organization had multiple offices. Is that something that um, when you think about like the venue of, of a contract or um, you know, some of these multinational aspects of a contract. Is that something you have experience with or have any thoughts on just in general, um, how, how to address some of those nuances of a multinational contract like this? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question because, you know, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of um, fact-specific information associated with where you're going to want to arbitrate or mediate. Now, the location may not be as important as what law governs, okay? And in fact, it's not. I mean... You know, if you're in Kuwait versus Saudi Arabia, I mean, if you're kind of geographically close to each other, it's more inconvenient for you to travel, you know, outside your home country to another country. I mean, you know, you're in you know, Colorado, I'm in Chicago, you know, us having to travel to, you know, Ottawa to, to you know, for a, a mediation or an arbitration, you know, that's not much different than, you know, you traveling to New York City or something, you know, arguably, right? Um, right. But, you know, if it's Canadian, Canada law, Canadian law, versus U.S. law, that could have a substantive impact on how that, that, you know, the outcome of that dispute. So I think, you know, you've really got to think about, you know, what law you want to govern the dispute. And ideally it should be, you know, in my view, from an American perspective, it should be, you know, the law of your home country, ideally, um, you know, in, in the law where the services are being performed should that that should be kind of what you're you're aiming for generally in most scenarios just because you're you're going to be more familiar with it it's going to be easier to access attorneys that that you know or that you've got referrals to that are familiar with that type of law you know what you don't want to do is you know we're you know we have a mediation or arbitration in uh, argentina and now we're you know scrambling to find you know argentinian counsel that's competent and we've got to fly out there you know we're now dealing with law that we're unfamiliar with you know, that could have serious ramifications. So, you know, ideally, you know, your your 
the venue is what we call it should be where you're located and ideally it should be your law i mean the, the worst thing that can happen is what we call in the legal world to get home courted right um you're a foreign corporation you know subject to dispute resolution in another country everybody there is you know this the same nationality you're the odd man out and you know now everybody you know is is you know glad handing each other and, and you know winking at each other and you're the guy that's getting screwed because you're not from the same country so those are the kind of the practical considerations of it without knowing the you know the intricacies of the, of the legal you know aspects of the jurisdictions yeah yeah absolutely and that, that's a good a good point and then a follow-up to that uh, also from gasan on um linkedin is he he was talking about with one year p vendor he worked with they couldn't make changes to their annual maintenance contract um, and when they tried to change those clauses, um, the vendor said no. And I know this is something you've, I've heard you speak about it at our, our events and other presentations I've seen you give. I, I've, I've heard you talk about the, you know, the hyperlink that's embedded in a contract that they can change at will, however they see fit. Um, and some of the difficulties negotiating, you know, the, the maintenance or SLAs in general. What, what's your experience been along those lines or what tips might you have for someone who's facing that same problem? Yeah, I, th I think you're you're in kind of an uphill battle situation. I mean, the, you know, the problem is I, these these contracts can be ever expanding, right? You, you've got a piece of paper that's a, usually a you know some kind of PDF or a Word document, and then there's all these embedded links that then you know link to other documents. So you know the document you think that's four pages long is 150 pages long. That's just a nightmare for review and negotiation purposes. And I think. The, the, the bright line there is really, you know, to be aware of and push back on their desire to be able to change agreed upon contractual terms at any point in your relationship with them. Now, that because that's unreasonable, okay? Why well, have a contract, right? There's there's no reason to have a contract if, if one side can change it at will. Now, there's, there's a reasonable aspect to this, and what they want to be able to do is change terms and conditions that govern the way you interact with the software to the extent that they've made substantive changes to it, you know, two, three, four years down the line. Now that's a reasonable concept, you know, so they've mm -hmm. got to have the flexibility to change, make changes to the software. And if they're, those changes necessitate, you know, a different way that you're going to interact with the software, they should have the ability to modify that. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, you know, both sides of the coin there and, and you've got to find a middle ground that's reasonable, but certainly one side should not be able to make unilateral changes to a contract without the other side's approval. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I find that fascinating that vendors, you know, will, will pull that or, or some of the, the uh, stiff arming they'll do to try and push through their, their clauses or their, you know, terms or whatever. Um, what about when you, if we kind of flip this, the other side of the coin or look to the other side of the, the spectrum here and look to your experience with, organizations throughout the world that have um that have reached some kind of failure they're, they're at a failure point and they've got some sort of legal dispute with their vendor or vendors how much of that in your experience could have been negotiated better on the front end versus you know it's it's just something that you know the si or the vendor went went astray uh, in their contracts well okay so if if your if your project's going to fail it's probably not going to fail for a technology reason, okay? Um, now, you know, people are going to be taken aback when I say this, but most likely the software works. It works for somebody, okay? And it works for, any vendor is going to point to, you know, thousands of implementations around the world, 
and customers that are using their software successfully. So what that suggests then is that you know the 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 software contract itself isn't isn't the linchpin in the process, okay? Where the software is going to fail because something wasn't negotiated correctly in the software agreement. And when I say software agreement, I mean the license, the on-prem license, the SaaS agreement, and whatever whatever document it is that governs the software. Um, that's not to say that there aren't provisions that are important in that agreement, because because there absolutely are, right? I mean, you've got to know what you're licensing. Um, you've got to know how much it costs. You've got to know, um, you know what you can do with that software, what the parameters of use are. You know, can you have third parties access it? Can you have third party technology come in and hook into it? You know, all of that stuff is, is incredibly important. Um, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily mitigate the risk of a failure. Okay. Mm. Now, if the software was misrepresented and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, that's a different story, right? That's fraud or negligent representation or something like that, okay? That's a whole nother issue. Um, but where it, it, it the, the mitigation factor really is gonna be in two documents and they're arguably the same document. It's gonna be in the MSA, right? The consulting agreement, the implementation agreement, and it's gonna be in the, set, the statement of work, okay? So you have to make sure that you account for the people process, right? It's not the technology process that you're contracting for. It's what is going to happen, right? What are the assumptions of the implementation? Who is responsible for the integration, the implementation, the configuration of the software? How are they responsible for it? When are things going to happen? And if they don't happen when they're supposed to happen, what is the consequence? What's the user acceptance testing criteria? You know, what are the agree agreed upon specifications for pieces of, of functionality, modules, deliverables, whatever you want to call it. And what happens when there's a deviation from the specifications that were agreed upon? How many times do they resubmit it? What happens, you know, they get three, let's say they get three bites at the apple, right? And it still doesn't work. What happens? What do you, what do you do as a customer? You get your money back, terminate the contract, sue them. I mean, you know, get another vendor to come in. What, you know, there's gotta be a defined process. That to me is where, you know, the the real cost benefit is, right? You're spending a lot of money on a lawyer to negotiate your contract. And if you put it all into the software portion of it, you may not be getting a lot of value back. It's from a risk mitigation perspective, from a failure perspective. I mean, you've really got to, you know, make sure that the assumptions and the expectations are all contractually defined in that services agreement, because that's where mm -hmm. failures happen, right? You look right. at little, you look at, I mean, you know, we can name, you know, 10 failures that have happened over the last, you know, 10 years. And, and why did they fail? Well, there were unreasonable expectations. There were, you know, uh, technology gaps, functionality gaps that weren't accounted for. There were things that were unexpected. And if you, if you, you know, can think expansively, account for those in your services agreement, figure out how to mitigate them, then you're really giving yourself a dog in the fight and you're going to do your best, you know, to avoid, to avoid a ERP implementation failure. Right. All right. Thanks very much, Marcus. We're going to take a quick break and continue this conversation. When we come back, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. We're in the middle of an interview with Marcus Harris. Uh, as a reminder, be sure to check out new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as any of the audio podcast platforms you listen to. Uh, let's cut back to the conversation. A question from the audience here uh, from Malcolm on LinkedIn, and he, he asked the question of, do, do companies and boards put enough effort into understanding all the stuff you're talking about, the, the importance of contracts, the importance of you know, some of the different criteria we've talked about here today, as well as other criteria that you help clients negotiate. Do you think in general companies and boards of those companies and the management teams, do they understand the importance of negotiating the best possible contract and the one that, you know, represents your interests, not just the vendor's interests? You know, I, I have to say, no, they don't. I mean, I, I, I want to say yes, but I think they, they, they pay lip service to it. They know they have to have a contract. Okay. And, and here's why I say they pay lip service to it. You get a mid-sized company that is entering into a multi-million dollar transaction for an ERP product, okay? And they, the first time they reach out to an attorney is a month before you know, the, the deadline for signing that contract. That's, that's not nearly enough time. You know, I mean, just, just the term cycle on a document can take a week, right? So you're putting all this pressure on that contract negotiation process and not giving the people enough time to do it properly and expecting, you know, perfect results. It's just, you know, at that point, you've got to pick and choose what's important, what's not important. You're giving up a whole bunch of, of, of leverage before you even start. So um, I, I think they understand that it's important, but I don't think they understand the process and what it really takes to do it right. Right. And, you know, yeah. one of the other things, too, that we see, you talk about trends, and, and I think this is probably happening because of vendors positions with respect to the the inflexibility and the non-negotiability of their contracts you know people are wanting to know well what what's market and you know what's what are the 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 minimal amount of things that we can do going into this contract you know because we don't want to ruffle feathers and we don't want to ask for certain things so they're less likely to negotiate on the front end anyway and that's to you know that's somewhat problematic i mean i think you've got to assess each situation you've got to you've got to go through list out all the problems with that contract and then you've got to figure out what's important to you you can't you can't say okay well we're only going to take change two things because you know, we know it's not negotiable well okay well that's fine but what about these other three things that are more important than that right yeah and it, it seems like that you know if, if you're an executive and you don't do this often you know most organizations most executives don't negotiate often with software vendors um, it seems like you can kind of get lost in the shuffle with for example, uh, if, if our organization was going to acquire a bunch of Office 365 licenses, um, they may not feel the need to negotiate that contract or the SLAs or the terms of the, that contract as 
as aggressively as they might, you know, some other large capital purchase. But when it comes to ERP or enterprise technology in general, that's that's quite a bit different, wouldn't you say? Then then there's just more risk and there's more nuances of the contract that you need to really tighten up when you compare it to say a, you know, a, a Office three sixty five license agreement. Would you agree with that, or is there? Oh no, I agree with that one hundred percent. I mean, they're not similar at all, right? I mean, the risk associated with you know Outlook and Microsoft Word for your organization, while they're important programs, you're not. It, it's not the spinal cord of your business, right? I mean, the 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 risk profile associated with a failed implementation project it's just enormous. I mean, you know, you, if you if you're you, you flip that switch, and you, the software doesn't work. And you can't ship product, you can't invoice customers, you, know, you can't even communicate with your customers. I mean, the, the amount of damage that you can sustain as a company is just enormous, you know. And you know, and that, that this goes to another issue that, that you haven't asked me about, but it's if you're spending three million dollars, four million dollars, five million dollars on an ERP system, you, you've got to make sure that you're spending enough money to negotiate that contract on the front end. I mean, you, that's not that's not a, a situation where you want to say, okay, well. Yeah, you know, we've got enough resources to buy the software, but we really don't have enough resources to negotiate it properly. Let's spend two thousand dollars, you know, just get a high-level review of the problem so we know what we're getting into. That that might be the way you want to go, but that that's not a good, a, you know, a good move. It's it's not a sound business decision, right? Yeah. I mean, you you really want to, you know, figure out how to mitigate the risk properly so that it matches what your risk tolerance is. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe organizations should think of this sort of contract negotiation less like an Office 365 or some you know more simple, relatively simple IT um, contract, less like that, and maybe compare it more to um, what you might go through if you're negotiating a capital construction project of a new building, um, you know, hiring a contractor to build a building, or or if you buy a bunch of equipment for your shop floor, or a bunch of machinery, you're probably going to spend. Intuitively, you know, you need to spend time negotiating that. It's a it's a big investment. So you want to make sure you get it right. You're reducing your risk, all that stuff. So I would see it more as like think of it more as one of those big, complex capital uh, contracts that you might negotiate elsewhere. That's how you should be treating these sorts of contracts as well. And I think that's a good way to look at it because you know the that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, you're 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 investing in infrastructure to to make you more profitable, to make you more efficient. And if you get it wrong, it's going to have far-reaching consequences, negative consequences for the business that are going to be potentially devastating. Um, so you know, it's a critically important contract to review. Um, and you know, the, the the challenge that you've got is, I mean, we live in a world of click-to-accept agreements and apps and that kind of thing. And then when you've got a vendor that says, well, you know, these are digital contracts, DocuSign, just you know, go through it quickly. We'll get this done. That, and that's you know, that's what the salespeople are, are trained to do, and that's what they push you for. And you know you don't want to be one of those unsophisticated individuals that does that. Like I said, you're setting yourself up for failure um, and a rude awakening down the road if something goes wrong. Yeah. Now, what about now? Let's just say I'm an executive or a team member, and I get everything you're saying. I'm buying it. I'm buying what you're saying right now. But the vendor comes to me and says, "Hey, I've got this really sweet year-end deal, or quarter-end, or month-end, or week-end deal. They always seem to have deals that are once in a lifetime that you've got to sign right now." Um, but what do you do in those cases? Do you, do you see that dynamic at play often where it's sort of like, let's not focus on the attorney stuff that Marcus is talking about. Let's focus on the sweet deal I'm going to give you if you just sign this and agree to all these terms by, you know, the end of the week or the end of the month or whatever. Do you see that yeah, dynamic? All, all the time. That's, that's the most common dynamic there is, right? And 
you know, what, what I've got to tell my clients is, look, you know, we, and we brought it up a little bit ago. It's okay. You're going to get this huge discount off the list price. It doesn't mean anything. Okay. If that, if that discounts available on, on December 31st, it, it, there's going to be something similar that's going to be available, you know, in January. It, it may not be the exact mix, but trust me when I tell you that if we properly negotiate this contract, we can, we can lower your spend over the life cycle of that, of that contract in a way that's going to get you more money, save, save you, save you more resources over the life cycle over time than just on the front end, right? Don't get, you can't get seduced by the front end discount because it, it, it doesn't mean very much. I mean, you know, if, if I can get you, you know, uh, caps on increases in, in future license spend, if I can get you, you know, discounts on, on, you know, particular products that you might like, or we can narrow down the, the definition of, just as an example of user types, right? Or wh whatever the licensing metric is, so that you know it's not so broad that they can come back to you and say, "Oh, well, now you owe us so much money." You know, how much money does that save you, right? Um, potentially a lot, and potentially a lot more than whatever you know sweetheart deal you're, you're they're proposing to you now. So you've got to look at it holistically, right? It's not just about a front end discount. Yeah, yeah, and I have yet—I don't know if you have the same experience or not—but I have yet to see a vendor that I can recall that has pulled an offer off the table and not honored, uh, you know, sort of a year end offer, you know, so in other words, December 31st came and went You hear this last year, they had this deal that ended at the end of the year, um, come January 25th or whatever today is, um, they decide that, uh, you know, the cu customer decides, yeah, okay, I find, I want to move forward now with that same deal. I've yet to see a vendor that says, no, actually, we're not going to honor that now. If you're ready to buy, chances are they're probably going to take, <laughs> they're going to take you up on that, even if it was a, you know, limited time offer of sorts. Have you found that same experience or have you seen otherwise? I, I haven't seen the, the deal just totally disappear. Okay. Where they go back to, oh, well now you got to renegotiate the whole thing. I haven't seen that happen. Now I've seen kind of a different mix and maybe not as good of a deal. You know, they couldn't get the same approvals um, because they're not incented. Right. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to go to president's club now this year. I'm not, I'm not making a my big bonus, but right. you know, we'll give, we'll, but it's going to be equivalent, right? It may not be the exact thing. So, you know, I think, I think the, the, you know, sense of loss or the sense of urgency that they set up, it's, it's really not warranted. Um, you know, I, I have a, I had a deal a couple of years ago. It was, uh, well, I won't tell you the vendor, but it, it was, you know, a, a end of year deal. And, you know, we, we stayed up until 1130 and we got the deal done but they couldn't get it signed on their end until the next morning. And so they told us, they told us that night, well, you know, the deal's off the table. But of course, magically at noon the next day, you know, the VP comes in and is like, no, we can still honor it. So, you know, I mean, even when they say they can't, they still can. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, here's another uh, audience question. That's an interesting one. That is a really good question that I don't think I've ever asked you in all the times we've talked. Um, but that is, um, how does the risk increase if you're dealing with more than one software vendor? And thank you, Malcolm, on LinkedIn for, for asking this question. But if you're dealing with, you know, sort of a best of breed environment or you've got, you know, third party bolt-ons or multiple systems that you're deploying as part of your transformation and therefore you have multiple contracts, how does that risk increase and how do you treat the negotiation process differently in those cases? Well, I think the risk has increased dramatically, right? I mean, the, the more cooks in the kitchen you have, so to speak, the more problems you're going to have. We had a very large SAP failure um, a few years ago 
multi-million dollar failure and actually put the, the company out of business. It was so bad. I mean, it was shockingly bad. One of the worst ones I've seen in my career. And they had probably three different vendors in there that were you know, doing bolt-ons, add-ons, niche players to the SAP system. And it was just a nightmare. So when, when it all hit the fan, you know, where did the fingers point? They pointed at everybody, right? SAP points to this guy, this guy points to this guy. It, it, that that's the problem that you've got to, that you're dealing with you know it, from a from a contract perspective how do you how do you mitigate that risk i think you know you you've got to make sure that to the extent that a vendor is using subcontractors or third parties to provide services on its behalf to you that there's contractual language in there that obligates that vendor to be responsible for any acts or omissions of those subs or third parties as if they were that vendor's own acts or omissions. So, you know, the, the goal is, as we say, is to have one throat to choke, right? If if you can do it. Now, it's not going to work in every scenario because it's just, you know, it, it may not be a sub scenario, right? But I think you've got to you've got to think about the risk profile profile associated with bringing in multiple vendors versus using one vendor that has, you know, that same functionality. It may not be, you know, the top tier functionality. It may be a B piece of functionality versus this niche player that's got an A functionality. But think about the risk mitigation associated with it, right? You've got seven vendors that come in, it becomes way more difficult. If you've got two or three, it becomes easier. So I think I think you don't want to be short-sighted when you think about how hard it's going to be to manage this process. Do you, when you, in addition to having to think about all these different moving parts with multiple vendors, do you have, who's ultimately in in charge contractually i don't know if that question makes sense but um you know you, who's the you know everyone's looking for that single throat to choke or that single hand to shake depending on how you look at it and when you've got a best of breed environment with two three five or however many software vendors how do you how do you create that accountability in a way that um doesn't just lead to point uh, finger pointing later so in other words it wasn't my fault that this project went south it's because of that other vendor that you're trying to integrate with their data didn't flow back to this my system the way it should have or whatever you know there's a lot of finger pointing that, that would happen there or that does happen there in those environments how do you is there a way to negotiate around that or or to create parameters in the contractual and procurement phase that protects against that sort of thing yeah and there is and, and really in the statement of work that's that's associated with the integration or the implementation of the products you're going to want to lay out you know who's who's actually responsible for you know, when these additional vendors come in and who's going to ensure that, you know, that that piece of functionality is integrated properly or that that vendor is actually managed. Right. But you're going to have a push pull kind of situation because you as the customer, you're going to do everything you can to get your main vendor to be responsible for all these other vendors. And that vendor is naturally not going to be want to be responsible for any acts or emissions of, of, of pure third parties that it's not even responsible for. So there's going to be a delicate dance in the way that you structure that contractual framework, but you've got to do it. You've got, you've got to figure out, you know, how to give yourself the best opportunity to look to one vendor when everything goes sideways. Um, yeah. And it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, but yeah, there's, there are, you know, techniques, contractual techniques to try to, to try to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also seems like um, even in situations that it may be a bigger hidden risk, vendors don't have real strong HCM or uh, warehouse management sorts of systems. So they'll bring out a partner that they partner with to integrate to a third party solution. So you feel like you're getting it from one uh, vendor, 
but in reality, oftentimes uh, what ends up happening is then the finger pointing happens there. So in other words, it's, it's not my fault, it's my partner's fault. And as a customer, you think, well, yeah, but I bought the software from you expecting you to be able to, to handle that. Is that, do you see that dynamic often? Yeah, we see it all, it, it, it's pretty common actually, right? When things start to go sideways, that's exactly what happens. Um, and, and again, there are methodologies, contractual frameworks for dealing with that scenario. And, and, and in some ways, and some of them aren't even, you know, directly related to that particular issue. But, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, identifying all the third parties that are going to touch the software or have access to your proprietary information or confidential information so that you at least know, right? You can, you can have them sign, you know, some kind of acknowledgement that says they're going to be bound by the same terms and conditions. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Um, and it's really going to be dependent on the particular scenario and the, the, the particular engagement. But it, I mean, it's it, like you said, it's a hidden risk. And, you know, you've, you've got to be you've got to hire people that have been through this rodeo a few times in order to be able to you know, parse that kind of thing out. Think about it, you know, expansively on the front end to, to mitigate the risk on the back end. Right. All right. Thanks very much, Marcus. We're going to take a quick break and continue this conversation when we come back. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, If you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage-consulting.com. At the top of the page, you'll see an icon for registering for Digital Stratosphere. So be sure to check it out. Digital Stratosphere, February 8th through 10th. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. We're in the middle of an interview with Marcus Harris. Uh, As a reminder, be sure to check out new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as any of the audio podcast platforms you listen to. Uh, Let's cut back to the conversation. From McDonald on LinkedIn says, uh, great insights. Good to be here. Greetings. I think McDonald's been in our live streams before. I think he's in somewhere in Africa. I forgot which country you're in, McDonald, but thank you for being here from Africa today. Um, so another question I had for you here is, uh, what are some of the, if we sort of shift gears away from procurement a little bit and just look to sort of the downstream impact of implementations, what do you see changing, if anything, uh, here in the 2020s, as far as implementation risk and things that, you know, are things to be aware of or watch out for potential blind spots, red flags that exist now or emerging or becoming a bigger deal now than perhaps two years ago or five years ago? Well, I mean, 
you, you can't avoid you know the, the whole COVID situation, right? And what it means to these implementations. Um, I, I think the the you know, likelihood right now, certainly, that you're going to have teams on site doing integration, implementation, configuration of your system is pretty is pretty small. It's all going to be done remotely, and and when that happens, there's a couple of things that you've got to be aware of. One is you want to make sure that you've got tight provisions that are governing your your you know the 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 treatment of your your intellectual property, your confidential information, your proprietary information, your personally identifiable information. Because you know, if you've got you know ten people that are all working remotely, coming in, burrowing in, accessing your your stuff, you want to make sure that there's protocols in place for for protecting it. So that's one one issue that's certainly different than I think a couple of years ago. And then you know the other the other issue is really again a people issue. How do you put in place the proper contractual provisions to manage an entirely remote staff, right? Mm. I mean, you, you've got to make sure that you've, you've accounted for that, that you understand, you know, what, what percentage of, of people are going to be accessing remotely, where they're going to be working from. I mean, is everybody going to be working from the Philippines? Are they going to have the right levels of experience? You know, are you going to be able to, to, to replace consultants that are underperforming? All, all of those kinds of things uh, become a, more of a management issue as everybody's working remotely, you know, because it's, it's different if you, you know, if they're there and you can see what they're doing, that's one thing, right? But if all these people are working from other countries and they're burrowing into your system, you know, late at night, you know, how do you, how do you have any kind of quality control over anything? So all, yeah. all of those things become important. Also the, uh, in addition to that, um, intellectual property, the security issues, there's also just the transparency into what your vendors are doing, not necessarily just from a security perspective, although that's obviously very important, but also from a, a cost visibility perspective and a project governance perspective. If you have a system integrator with a bunch of resources that you never see, they're never in your office, but they're off somewhere else billing by the hour and putting X number of man hours into the project, it's even harder now to look behind the curtain to see what exactly are these people doing. Do I need all these people billing all this time to my project? Um, it was already a problem before COVID, but now it's even more of a problem, I would say, um, in this post-COVID world with with more remote workers. Would you agree with that, or have you seen that dynamic? No, we, we see it all the time, and I, I mean, you've, you've got to make sure that your you know, your steering committee meetings are happening, your weekly project status meetings, whatever you know, however often they're happening, are actually happening. People are attending those that you've got your finger on the pulse of. And what's happening with your project and one of the other things that we see and this is in the litigation context is you know we'll see regularly updated and provided you know project status updates but a lot of times those those are you know and i've used this word a few times today illusory right i mean they don't really provide any kind of meaningful information to you to make a decision as to what the real status of the project is everything's a green light everything's great and then all of a sudden you know, everything turns into red and you're like well, what the what the hell happened here yeah right? how did that happen Exactly. And, and, you know, that's when all of the, you know, the fundamentals, right, become incredibly important. It's just basic project governance 101 has to come to the forefront in this type of environment. You can't leave anything to chance. And, you know, I've got clients, particularly in the litigation context, that say, hey, we want to have a hands-off approach. We're hiring experts so that they can come in and do what they need to do. We are not, not experts in software implementation or integration, project management why we're hiring people to do it and that's fine but you know you've got the fox guarding the hen house right in that you know the the the, the vendors are incented by billing hours 
and making modifications and customizations to that system so that they can generate more revenue. You know, and, and so your interests aren't aligned. And if you if you're not actively managing the project, you're you're really going to be in for a, a bad surprise at the end. Yeah, that's a great point. And so even the best contracts with the best parameters and SLAs and terms and conditions, even though the best contracts, the best negotiated contracts still can't save you from poor project governance or lack of, of project controls and that sort of thing that oftentimes gets off track. It can help you. I guess it, I suppose it can help establish some of those more formalized, documented uh, controls, but it, but it's not going to totally save you. You still have to manage the project the way you would, you know, any other big project. Right. I mean, we can we can put the obligations in the contract, but, you know, if, if no one's going to abide by the contract anyway, then, you know, we can't really, you know, be it's not really going to be much help. Right. I mean, you've got to have someone that's interested in living by that contract. Um, you know, if you put all the effort into to developing a contractual framework that, that lays out all the things that you're supposed to do from a project governance standpoint, that's one thing. But if you don't follow them, then, you know, what was the point on the front end? Right. Um. Here's a an interesting long question. I'm going to try and simplify it. In fact, I'm not even going to show it on the screen because it'll I don't think it'll show. Um, but it's this is from Gasan on LinkedIn as well, and it's a really good question. I'm just trying to think of how to paraphrase this, and I don't know if you can see it too, Marcus. But if you can, it, it might help to read it. Um, but it's uh, it's the one that starts with another lengthy question um, that came to mind. Um, are, as there were deliverables and documentations during the ERP implementation that one could use for knowledge base refer to in the event of a future dispute, I decided to video record all the training events by the ERP consultants during the design and training stages of the project. This was to be used for future training for new users and any super users who, would be used, who could use it for training material. And then a few years down the line, the company had some issues with the inventory module, reached out to the ERP vendor, um, they'd reconfigured the module and they had no other choice. Uh, he reviewed the recording and noticed that in the design stage, the ERP consultant made the recommendation to configure some parameters of the, of the module. So he had proof of what, you know, what was actually said or what was being done during that um, design phase. And I guess, you know, maybe I'll broaden the question a little bit or, or the point a little bit to, you know, everything from demos, you know, so you're oftentimes demoed a vanilla off the shelf solution, but, um, Sometimes that required some special configuration or, or in some cases, customization, or um, it's a different version of the software than what you're actually getting. So they might demo one product, but then the contract is for an older version or a different version or doesn't match up to what you were shown. Do you have any recommendations like this, like recording demos, recording trainings or anything like that to help just give you the documentation to, to kind of the, the paper trail or the, the thread, the breadcrumbs of how to connect those dots or those, you know, expose some of those risks or challenges? Yeah, it, the more information that you've got, the more documentation that you have as to what was said during these meetings is going to is, is going to serve you well later, right? Because you can't you can't deny, you know, the undeniable as a vendor, right? If my people came in and they said A, B, and C, and now I'm trying to say, well, they didn't say that, right? It becomes very difficult if there's proof, right? But I think you've got to be very careful in the way that you go about this, depending on the jurisdiction. I mean, some jurisdictions require, you know both parties to consent to recordings, some party, some jurisdictions don't. So you've got to know, you know what, what jurisdiction you're in and you don't want to just, you know, start recording phone calls without the, the consent of the other party to the extent it's required because then, you know, it, it, you're going to get yourself into trouble, right? And so you don't want to do that. But I, but I think if you take a step away from, from those particulars, you know, the fundamentals are get everything you can documented. 
you, you've got to know, you, you've got to have proof of what was said. And, and one of the problems that we run into, um, it, there's all types of evidence, right? There's testimony, there's documents, there's emails, text messages. Um, but it becomes challenging when it, it's essentially a he said, she said kind of scenario where, you know, I say, well, you demoed this to me and it wasn't what you sold me, but there's no proof of what was actually demoed. No, no real substantive proof. Um, you know, that becomes hard to prove in court, obviously. So I think, you know, get everything documented as, as much as you can. You don't want to you know, be pessimistic and think that people are lying to you or, or actively trying to defraud you. But, you know, these things happen. And, you know, you might as well set yourself up for success if you're going to have a dispute. Right. Now, what about, um, trying to decide, I have a few questions here. I'm trying to prioritize them. Speaking of prioritization, um, what about the vendor, vendor migration to the cloud? So, you know, a lot of vendors are, are, are moving their products from on-premise to cloud solutions. A lot more customers are buying cloud solutions now than they were five, 10, 20 years ago. Um, what are some of the nuances or, or challenges unique to cloud deployments um, that that people should be aware of? Well, you know, it, it's almost like this, you know, it, unreasonable optimism with respect to the cloud is what I would call it. Okay, just because something is in the cloud doesn't mean it's better than an on-prem solution. It just doesn't. Right? And 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 you know, point of fact, a lot of these cloud solutions that are being pushed on people today, they're not fully baked. They're not real cloud solutions. They're not, they're not built for the cloud from the ground up. They're just, you know, old, old on-prem systems that have now been modified to, to, to work in the cloud. Those kinds of things are going to cause problems and they're, they're not going to work out very well. And it's hard to know as a customer what you're buying sometimes. But I think, you know, caveat emptor is really what should be governing, you know, your approach to these things as a customer. And you've got to be asking those questions during during the sales process. You know, is this built for the cloud? Is what you know what? How is it configured? Um, you know, if you, are you just taking something that was an on-prem solution, uh, you, you know, and, and modifying it to be a cloud solution? Just because something's in the cloud doesn't doesn't mean it's better in any way, shape, or form. You know, and, and in fact, I think you know the the constant drip of subscription fees and and and, and you know just other types of Cost associated with that, you know, can make it actually more expensive in the long run, uh, much more expensive. So, you know, if, if someone just, you know, is trying to, is a, is a general proposition telling you, hey, this is, you know, this is a cheaper alternative, or it's a better alternative technologically, te from a technological standpoint, that's not necessarily the truth. So, um, you know, I don't, I personally don't see in the deals that we do. That these cloud apps and and, and and cloud solutions are are all that mature. Some of them are, but a lot of them are. I don't know what you see, Eric, in, in your situation. You probably see a lot more deals from a technology standpoint than I do. So you probably are, you know, have have some insight into that as well. Yeah, I, I think it's that what you just said is true, especially for the larger vendors who spent billions of dollars in R and D on their on premise solutions over decades, and now they're trying to move all that seemingly overnight I am exaggerating when I say overnight obviously but you know they're very quickly trying to move that all over to the cloud now to, to kind of beef up their their cloud offerings and it's just there's just a lot of holes in those solutions especially when you get into when you get outside of sort of the core basic ERP stuff like financials inventory management um, when you get outside that basic stuff into like PLM or manufacturing shop floor automation um, all that kind of stuff there, there's still 
you know, a lot to be desired there for some of those bigger vendors. But you know, you also have like the NetSuite of the world, um, Salesforce, Workday, some some native cloud solutions that have been in cloud forever. And that yeah, I, the, my comment that I just made doesn't apply to them necessarily uh, because they've always been in the cloud. But it's more of those those legacy on-premise vendors that are now moving to the cloud. That's where you see more of that risk that you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you just reminded me of something. Um, cloud cloud solutions sometimes have kind of like this latency concept built into them, and not not necessarily intentionally, obviously. But you know, you you want to make sure because this has come up in litigation in the recent past with particular vendors, um, and I'm not, not going to say who because it's confidential. But you know, we we see substantive issues with certain vendors that um, you know their their processing speeds in the cloud. Are almost not built for modern commercial needs. You know, something's taking 15 seconds to process. I mean, imagine that, right? If it's taking yeah. seven seconds, what you know? So you know that that's cloud at, at its worst in some ways. So you know, you've got to you've got to go into this with open eyes and ask the right questions on the front end and really kind of you know separate the wheat from the chaff as far as what these salespeople are telling you. You know. Right. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Marcus. Thanks for being here again. Appreciate having you on the show. Uh, as always, you've shared a lot of really good information that'll be helpful, uh, hopefully for our audience here and also some uh, topics or threads that uh, Kyler and I want to pick up on and maybe dive into a little bit more. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 50. My name is Eric, I'm here with Kyler. Uh, we just had Marcus Harris on the show talking about uh, legal stuff, uh, vendor contracts, procurement. We even got into some implementation, project governance, and things of that nature that organizations need to think about as they try to mitigate risk in their transformation initiatives. What were some of your thoughts or takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start by plugging those live streams. So if if you haven't joined one, they are so fun because the um, entire audience members are asking questions and we're doing some Q&A in real time. So they're at um, 10 o'clock Eastern time in the United States. Um, so be sure to subscribe to Eric's channel because you can set a reminder and they're just really interesting to listen to in real time. So just kind of starting with with that overall um, insight on my side, because it was very, very interesting, especially from a a legal standpoint to listen to different um, challenges or experiences that our overall audience community has had. Um, and a lot of my questions kind of stemmed from their questions today. Um, so I want to start, Eric, in, in just talking about the the challenges in fle flexibility from vendors that, that Marcus mentioned. 
And it, it was surprising to me in, in a variety of ways. So when you have no flexibility from those larger, bigger vendors that, you know, you're, you're, if you're not the McDonald's of the conversation and you may be still in, in the million dollar ballpark, but it seems as though they're kind of my way or the highway uh, type of overall um, concept. And I wondered if you could kind of give us an insight as to why those bigger companies allow that. You, there's such forces, right, in, in the overall, in their industry. And to kind of let a software vendor, even though they're big, kind of bully them into a different contract, I guess is just surprising to me. Like, why wouldn't they just go to one of the tier two vendors or pick a best of breed option where they can have what they actually want in negotiating contracts? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I have a good, complete answer for you other than, you know, maybe share some pockets of where I think uh, the dynamic comes from. I don't think it explains the whole picture, but part of it, I think, comes from, you know, let's start on the high end of the market with the big, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, the, the big multi-billion dollar companies like McDonald's or others that um, are going to spend a lot of money on a, on a deployment. Um, you would think that they have the leverage in the conversation, but the problem is they end up they they end up a lot of those bigger companies end up boxing themselves in and narrowing the competition, if you will, the competitive field down to say SAP and Oracle. You know, for a lot of big companies that are looking for a new ERP or enterprise wide technology, a lot of times it comes down to SAP and Oracle. So there's really on one hand there's a lot of competition in the enterprise technology space, but on the other hand, at the top end of the market, there's really not that much competition. So I think that's part of the dynamic you see there is that SAP and Oracle now suddenly wield a lot of influence or yield, yield a lot of influence. Is that right? Yield or wield? I don't know. They, they exert a lot of influence on, on, uh, on, the, uh, on the software or on the customers. Um, in the mid-market, you know, obviously the bigger vendors are going to you know, have the more negotiating leverage. And then the problem is if you're a mid-market company and you go downstream and look for a smaller vendor, maybe those vendors are too small. They might be more flexible and more willing to negotiate, but it could be that the product itself is not scalable or not, you know, doesn't meet your, your needs. So I think that's part of the dynamic is sort of the limited competition within each of the, the individual segments of the market. Overall, there's a ton of competition in the market, but once you start to get into specific parts of it, it seems like there's really not that much competition. And then the other dynamic at play that I think probably contributes to what you're talking about is the fact that all the vendors act consistently in that way. You know, it's a, and I, I, I say all of them, I don't necessarily mean 100% of them, but a lot of them do, a majority I would say do. Um, and they all sort of have the same mentality of it's our way or the highway, our technology rules, it's awesome, you really need this more than we need you. Um, and it's a, for whatever reason, it's a mindset that a lot of customers just buy into. I, I'm not sure why, but uh, they do. So anyway, that's and that's part of why we always challenge the industry and try to call out some of the deficiencies in the industry is because there's there's really not many voices of reason to kind of call out some of those behaviors. Absolutely. And and I feel, and maybe it's just my ignorance to other industries, but I feel like that's pretty unique to the software kind of playing field is that you can have vendor partners that stand up and say, no, no, thank you. No, like, you know, this is the way that we're going to do it. Do you feel like in kind of the trends of some emerging tier two or tier three system integrators or vendor or software vendors that there might be an opportunity to kind of challenge that overall mindset? Yeah, I, I do. 
Um, I think that uh, you have some vendors that are trying to do that and some that are doing it successfully. I don't think enough are doing it, but you're starting to see some. Like for one example that comes to mind is Odoo um, or OpenERP, you know, to the open source um, ERP software providers. They're sort of disrupting the model by saying, hey, we've got this software that we're just going to put out there for lower cost. We're not going to be as restrictive. We're going to let you try it for free. Um, we're not going to have these contracts that lock you in long term and make it really hard to get out of our software. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard enough as it is to change enterprise technologies. There's no point in these software vendors being so overbearing about contractually locking you in and making it cost prohibitive longer term. Um, there's a lot of that stuff that, um, again, I you know, they do it because they can. Um, but I think there needs to be more software vendors like Odoo and OpenERP that step up and challenge that model. Cause I think there's a big market for that. I think that if you can build that trust and give, um, give customers buying organizations a better alternative, that's either lower cost, more flexible, easier to deal with. Um, I think you could, you could slowly chip away significantly at the market share of some of these bigger software providers. Absolutely. And, and that kind of brings me to my next question is when you had had that conversation about cybersecurity and data management and data security, um, Marcus had referenced an organization as big as the National Football League here in the United States that were struggling with that. I wondered if you could provide some insight, um, even if it's top line, is cybersecurity something that is a contractual almost piece of accountability for software vendors, or is that really all on the enterprise? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know for sure. Um, I know that performance and uptime is oftentimes something that's included in a, in a contract. But as far as security, like ensuring that um, data doesn't get breached or that the system itself doesn't get breached, I honestly don't know. I don't recall. And it's been a while since I've helped clients directly negotiate contracts. Our, our team does all the time, our, our team members. Um, so that might be a good a question for one of them when they're back on one of our team members is back on the show. But I, I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't recall. Yeah, definitely. I just, I think it would be an interesting um, attachment and it's easy for me to say, right. It's someone that's never been through that process, but if you do have kind of this cyber warfare, this climate of cyber warfare and a, a large enterprise is hacked, is there any sort of liability on the software company to help them kind of work through that um, instead of, you know, the U.S. government saying, oh, do not pay the ransom. It's like, that's really easy for you to say in the fact that you're not losing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue a day um, because you can't do your overall day-to-day -day business um, or complete transactions in any way. Yeah. I mean, if you have a, a managed service cloud hosting provider of sort, whether it's directly through your software vendor, or if you've hired a third party managed service provider that, that hosts your applications in the cloud and they provide all the infrastructure, then yes, you do have a, an answer. And that actually is one of the high value um, um, justifications for managed services in the cloud is that now you have someone else who's responsible for that. And if there is a breach, that's on them to to um, get out of that. Now, you know, just a caveat that the I don't know answer I gave a moment ago, I was sort of answering it from the context of uh, software vendors. So if a software vendor provides you a, a cloud solution, but you have, you know, you're, you're managing your own infrastructure and somehow you have a breach, I don't know how you contractually or if you can contractually lock that in. But I think with managed service providers and cloud uh, providers, you can do that. 
or that is common to have uh, clauses or, or cybersecurity SLA, you know, levels of performance that are expected uh, for those those types of organizations or for those types of uh, customers. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that you know if if you're running on-prem systems and you have a breach and someone hijacks your on-premise applications and you're managing the infrastructure, um, short of hiring someone else to come in and help clean it up and fix it, I don't know that you really have a whole lot of a whole lot of options, unfortunately. And that's why, you know, a lot of organizations don't want to have to mess with that risk and they want to move to cloud or managed services types of options. So knowing that cybersecurity and data management is really something that has become the forefront in digital transformation. Do you feel as though contractually there will be more kind of information or attachment to specifically software vendors, not so much the hosting, um, cloud hosting, those type of types of things, but is that something that will be kind of a main, even sales tactic for them um, moving forward? Yeah, I think it already kind of is. They're using that as a as a sales message, as far as just the reliability and the um, security of of their products and their offerings. Um, there is some truth to that. I think where I where I get hung up or where I I push back with vendors is when they say that cloud options are cheaper because usually it's it's not cheaper. But there, you know, as we've talked about so far in this discussion, there are other upsides like you know tighter cybersecurity protocols and um, just someone else managing the infrastructure or something you don't have to deal with. Um, so I think they are, that is a good sales and marketing message that you're already seeing uh, come from a lot of those vendors. Interesting. Well, that's something that, that I think is, is, is something that's kind of on the minds of many businesses, especially those that maybe can't afford a huge, you know, data security or cybersecurity overall portfolio, because they may be a smaller business, but still obviously want to keep their data secure. So that's something that I'm excited to one at Digital Tradesphere asks, Christy Barber um, and Amanda about in their their mid market and small business um, presentation, and then also Brad Feeks from Estes Group that will join us and talk about um, uh, cloud ERP migration strategies. So those will be two good ones to to talk about. One thing I I have two more questions because you know I have so many questions when it comes to Marcus. So when it comes to to contract timing best practices. We had a question from our audience about like, why do executives and, and specifically the board sometimes sometimes not understand um, or not be as engaged in the contracting process? And his answer was like, well, a lot of times they don't understand the timeline that's needed to actually engage legal counsel or support. So I wondered if you could give us kind of some timing best practices or when you should know that you should engage either your general counsel or outside legal help um, within kind of your contracting process? Well, I mean, my opinion is that it's such a big decision. It's a big spend. It's a big uh, risk for a lot of organizations to go through a project like this that I, in my opinion, most if not all organizations should be enlisting the help of outside legal counsel, someone like a Marcus that specializes in these sorts of contracts, as well as your internal legal counsel, because obviously you're going to have certain terms and conditions that uh, might be deal breakers for your organization or your legal strategy as an organization. But most internal legal counsels don't have a lot of experience negotiating these types of contracts in particular. And, and people like Marcus know what those pitfalls are. They know how the different vendors operate and where the, the gotchas are. So I think it I, I think it's a pretty small 
investment for the value you get by having both, you know, outside counsel like a Marcus Harris, as well as your internal legal counsel to sort of do that final walkthrough of general terms and conditions. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, just having that overall industry insight is huge to that process. Um, my last piece of, of commentary I wanted to just comment on or ask you about was the the multi-vendor contracts. We kind of talked about the complexity around that. And I, I wondered if you could give us the third stage perspective on A, how you kind of advise clients through understanding just the different dynamics, not only contractually, but like just overall working with that many multi-vendor systems. And then also, is there ever a, a place in which vendors have the opportunity to kind of close the door on in, in um, independent consultants through contracts with a specific business? Uh, as far as independent consultants like like third stage? Yeah, because I know they we have a great relationship with a lot of software vendors, but when you say, hey, I have this independent consultant that's gonna help me through this, I assume they'd much rather just kind of use their own team and work directly with the client. Um, and I wonder if there's ever a situation in which you've experienced a vendor trying to kind of pinch you out of the contracting experience, if you will. No, I mean, we used to more than we do now. I think we're established enough now and people kind of know who we are and what our approach is and they know that we're not a, a threat to them, the vendors. I mean, we may not be an ideal addition to their customer's team because, you know, now we, you know, they've got someone else on their, the customer has someone else on their side helping negotiate contracts. So it's not that they're excited about it necessarily, but we work with these vendors so often across the world, you know, throughout our four offices throughout the world that they know who we are. They know that at the end of the day, the clients, the customer is going to be happier, more comfortable. And, you know, they, after a while, they start to see that, hey, these guys really are independent. They really are just looking out for their customer's best interests. I think where we have a bigger challenge is with the system integrators, especially the bigger system integrators like the Deloitte's, the Accenture's, the KPMG's, um, those view us as more of a threat because, um, you know, they want to own the entire services relationship. They want to do everything and including the things that they're not good at or including the things that they just don't do at all. They still want to keep others out from coming in to provide those services to their customers. So um, they, too, are starting to learn who we are and starting to you know, figure out how to how to coexist with us, as are we with them. Um, but it's still, you know, it's more of a challenge. And we're still, you know, we're still trying to work through that as well. Interesting. Well, such a great um, piece there with Marcus. And, and again, please join us on day two for Digital Stratosphere, where he talks about just all things in contracting and digital transformation. So there will be a live Q&A at that event. So I encourage you to bring your questions. Um, I'll be in the background as I always am, just hanging out, um, asking questions um, from our audience to Marcus. So a great opportunity to get some legal insight on your project. Yeah, and I have yet to see Marcus get stumped with any sort of question. Me too. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I was kind of trying today, you know, in, in that discussion, yeah. as I was getting questions from the audience, I was trying to change the questions around and try. I, actually, a lot of the questions I asked him, I didn't, I said, I send most uh, guests, I'll send them my questions in advance just so they're prepared. But with him, I gave him a list, but then I went totally off script and asked him a bunch of stuff that wasn't on my script. But he, I don't think anyone, I couldn't tell any difference in the, in his response. So uh, he's, he's really good. So yeah, throw the questions at him and the other speakers and um, learn as much as you can from that event. And if you're, if you happen to be listening to this podcast after the event already happened, because a lot of people listen to this weeks and months after they're published, 
Um, you can still go to stratosphere2022.com, download all the recordings and uh, hear um, all the great content we have there. So uh, good. Well, that's that's good stuff. We're going to shift gears, though, and go from legal strategy and contractual stuff and now shift gears and talk about executive strategy and sort of overall digital transformation strategies and how executives can define their strategy for their digital transformation. And what we're going to do after a quick break is we're going to come back and play you a clip from, was this a stratosphere, uh, a previous yeah, stratosphere? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, 2021. Um, we did it last April in 2021. So still very relevant. You know, we thought the world would be kind of back to normal at this point, but we can see that we're still kind of learning. Um, and this is very timely. I feel like it gives a great snapshot of what the event's about and giving real actionable tactics to you. How do you make sure that you do have this executive summary around digital transformation and, and understand what's needed to be successful? Yeah, I, I remember giving this presentation with Adam, but I can never remember when or where or how we gave it. But it was a presentation that Adam Cheatham, who's a, our director of strategy and transformation in our U.S. office, and myself gave this presentation at Stratosphere 2021. So we're going to play you a little clip from that uh, when we come back. Uh, but first, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 53. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms or wherever you're listening or watching to this episode here today. So be sure to subscribe to us. Uh, be sure to uh, leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. Uh, I'm excited for uh, our next clip that we're going to play. Um, we're going to play a clip with Adam Cheatham, who's our director of strategy or one of our directors of strategy and transformation uh, within our U.S. office. And he and I, about a year ago at Digital Stratosphere in 2021, I gave a presentation about executive strategy, digital transformation strategy, some of the things to be thinking about and how to define your, your digital strategy and roadmap. So we're going to play this clip. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll sort of unpack some of the concepts there. But let's go ahead and roll the clip right here from Stratosphere 2021 with Adam Cheatham and myself. This is a presentation that Adam and I often give uh, to new clients and or executive teams uh, at new clients, just to help them understand, you know, what are, you know, if we have to give you a summary view of what it's going to take to be successful in a project and what it's going to take to navigate some of the pitfalls and avoid some of the failure points that Marcus talked about earlier today. Um, what are those things? And and really building on both what Marcus Stewart talked about earlier as well as what I talked about in the opening session. So we want to just provide an executive summary of, of transformation best practices. And 
uh, Adam chime in at any point, uh, add color commentary, cut me off, and certainly uh, anyone else who wants to jump in and, and interrupt with questions or, first of all, you're not interrupting, but uh, hopefully you know what I mean. Just chime in with any any chat questions you have in the chat box there, either uh, um, on whatever platform you're you're watching this on. And I'm keeping an eye here on LinkedIn as well for anyone that might might uh, have comments on LinkedIn that's watching there. Um, so the uh, first thing to understand is diving a little bit deeper into understanding what is digital transformation. What is that overview of what digital transformation is? And we've talked a lot about this um, between Stuart's presentation and mine, uh, just some of the emerging technologies, the different words and acronyms and types of technology that are used in digital transformation. I guess the, the short summary without rehashing everything that Stuart just talked about, there, there's, a lot of stuff out there. there's a lot of technology emerging. There's a lot of options when it comes to digital transformation. Digital transformation can mean a lot of different things to different people and to different organizations. And it should mean different things to different organizations. It should align with what, what it is you're trying to accomplish. And, um, and that's one of the keys to, to keep in mind. And, and there is no one size fits all answer. There's no cookie cutter approach. There's no silver bullet. I mean, I, hopefully that's a theme that you're picking up on here with, with us and our technology agnostic view of the world is that, you know, what might work for one organization doesn't make sense for another organization and vice versa. So we've got to figure out what the right path forward is for us uh, as an organization. And one thing that is helpful though, to understand, and again, there's no right or wrong answer here is to understand, you know, what is a true digital transformation versus a more of a traditional technology implementation. And I, you know, in this slide here, we compare, call it your traditional ERP implementation that, you know, would have been relevant 20 years ago to maybe a more comprehensive, bigger picture view of digital transformation, which is what you see on the right. And, and again, I, even though I think the, the bias here is to assume that digital transformation is better than ERP implementation or traditional technology implementation, that may or may not be true. It really does just depend on what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish for a lot of organizations doing a more incremental improvement or upgrade to their existing ERP system or their enterprise technologies can make a lot of sense, especially if what you've got is a pretty good starting point, especially if uh, you're risk adverse, especially if you have other competing priorities that you don't want to throw in a big, massive transformation in the middle of, then a more incremental ERP implementation can make a lot of sense. For other organizations, maybe on the other extreme, you're going to have more massive um, external impacts that might force you into a transformation. So for example, you look at um, industries such as retail um, that's being disrupted significantly or was already being disrupted significantly and then COVID came along and disrupted it even more. And retail is a good example of an industry that if they haven't digitally transformed yet, they're way behind and they're, they're being forced to uh, in that space. And so in most organizations are going to be somewhere in the middle. They're going to be somewhere between, you know, small incremental baby steps and big, massive transformation. Most organizations are going to be in the spectrum or the, the continuum uh, somewhere in the middle. So the key here is to understand, you know, what is the difference between the two uh, extremes? And most importantly is to, is to really have clarity and definition of what exactly it is where, where we fall on the continuum. And that's really the key is if there's one takeaway I could leave you with on this slide, it's just be sure you understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to accomplish an incremental, call it traditional ERP technology upgrade or implementation? 
or are you really trying to swing for the fences and really look for ways to improve your processes significantly and to rethink your business model and to standardize processes or to integrate processes, whatever the, whatever the goals and objectives are, those are all the things that you want to uh, try uh, to make sure you have alignment and clarity on. Now, when you look through each of the line items here, you know, with the technology, the process management, change management, business value, all the, the row headings uh, that you see on the left, you can see what the differences are between the two. And, and again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a matter of being clear about where it is you, you are and making sure your team's clear about where it is you fall on this continuum and then defining a path forward that aligns with that uh, clarity. So I mentioned in the first presentation today that one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest root causes of failure is lack of alignment and misalignment as an organization. And this is a good example of how teams oftentimes get really misaligned. They go in thinking that, for example, they'll go in thinking that, hey, we're gonna do this big massive digital transformation. We're gonna implement enterprise-wide technology. We're gonna rethink our business processes. We're gonna reimagine the art of the possible and all these you know, big buzzwords that industry analysts and us consultants like to throw out there. But then when they go to execute, to plan and execute, they treat it like an ERP implementation. They, they plan as though they're managing a more, uh, you know, traditional ERP upgrade. And that right there, you're starting out of the gates with misalignment and you've got an unrealistic view of what the path forward really should be versus what it is. And you can see how quickly you get pretty tangled up and your team's going to get tangled up and, and it can be very difficult to, um, to succeed in that kind of environment when you have those sort of headwinds working working against you. So that's that's one of the big challenges um, that we see, you know, in this. And so that's that's probably the big takeaway here is just really understand what it is you're trying to accomplish between ERP implementation, digital transformation, or somewhere in between and getting alignment on what that means to the overall transformation and, and the overall plan. I think something that's important on that to note as well is that from an ERP implementation perspective, that's a bit more of a prescriptive technological solution, uh, whereas a digital transformation is something that is, should be ongoing. You should always be transforming your business to, to remain at the forefront of, of your industry and is a bit more driven towards what the, the organization and your business needs as opposed to uh, a specific solution that would solve a, a number of your potential digital transformation needs and goals, um, but shouldn't be the actual answer. So as, as an enabler, the ERP um, is the technology that enables a, a pretty significant chunk of your digital transformation, but isn't the actual transformation itself. Yeah, great. Great point. Um, and it's a that's an important uh, takeaway there is to ensure you've got that understanding uh, going in here. All right, we're going to take a quick break and uh, pick this up when we come back. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, 
program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com. At the top of the page, you'll see an icon for registering for Digital Stratosphere. So be sure to check it out, Digital Stratosphere, February 8th through 10th. Hope to see you there. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're in the middle of a presentation clip that we're playing uh, from Adam Cheatham and myself. So let's go ahead and jump back into the conversation. The other thing to think about, too, is what what are those challenges of digital transformation? And this is actually a... uh, a top five list based on uh, our research and experience. And we published this in our, our 2021 digital transformation report, which um, you can download on our website. And something tells me that Kyla is probably going to put up a link in the chat box. Like she has been throughout the, <laughs> throughout the whole, the whole session here today. So that we have a link there for you to potentially uh, do that. But um, in that study or in that uh, paper that you'll see uh, the top challenges that organizations face, and this isn't just our opinion. This is what, organization state and what the project teams are saying are their challenges and, and issues they face. The number one uh, challenge is, is change management and managing the people uh, part of the, the equation. Um, the second thing is misalignment with strategic strategic objectives. Um, and that's the key that we were just talking about on the previous slide, just making sure that there's a, a good deal of clarity on, on what that those strategic objectives are and how this transformation lines up with that. And then number three is managing uh, the, the system integrator and making sure that you don't view the system integrator as an end all be all uh, as a one-stop shop because they really aren't. They, they may be a one-stop shop in terms of the technology work stream, but when you look at the business process and the organizational change work streams, that's typically areas that system integrators are not, are not very uh, well-versed in or if they do have competencies in that area, it's very superficial and it's very much focused on the technology and how to use the technology versus how to transform the business and define business processes and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that difficulty managing the, the system integrator is a big challenge. And then number four is clarity of business processes, um, making sure that um, you have clarity around uh, what those, those business processes are going to be. And then fifth is difficulties with data migration. So those are really the top five uh, challenges that that organizations um, face. And I, I'm getting some comments here that the, the slide is blurry and there's, there is a lot of text here, a lot going on here, but hopefully you can read, at least read the bullet or the, uh, the bolded areas. And if not, I've, I've verbalized uh, for you what those five things are. And, and again, we'll, we'll, uh, Make sure you have a link or you do have a link here in the chat box. If you want to download that report, you can actually see this exact graphic in that report. So if you want to check that, that's probably going to be easier for you to read or refer back to. And it, and it actually goes into more detail on these five areas as well in that report. So uh, if you're if you're watching here on Crowdcast, just be sure you, you click that link to, to get the report. So one thing I'll note here is that none of these five things, except for maybe the fifth one, uh, the data migration one, 
uh, really have anything to do with the, the technology or, or the software itself. These are all issues related to business processes, organizational change, and uh, you know, I'd call it project governance as well. So um, just food for thought there, as you think about where are you most likely gonna run into trouble? I heard Marcus say, yeah, you sometimes do have issues with technology and you can certainly find a way to mess that up if you start to customize software, if you don't you know, really think things through or test the software, you can certainly run into issues there. But uh, back to a point I made in the first session, it's usually fairly black and white or relatively black and white on the technology side, either the technology works or it doesn't from a technical perspective. But the gray area comes down to, yes, it works technically, but does it work for our business, for our organization? And that gray area is where most organizations struggle, where most organizations don't spend enough time and money. And uh, so it's, it's really a matter of maybe shifting your mindset a little bit to focus more on those other areas. And then another challenge that, that we see is that in that same report, in that same link that you, you see that, that Kyla provided here, um, you can see that one of the biggest challenges that organizations face is this whole concept of operational disruption. So we spend so much time thinking about what is the, what is our cost of implementation? How long is it going to take? How much, um, how much of people's time is it going to take? And we, we tend to try to optimize or minimize that amount of time without, or, or that amount of time and that overall cost without thinking about the longer term implications. Yes, we could certainly cut costs and reduce the implementation duration and reduce the amount of impact that this has to our resources during the implementation. We could always do that. But the question becomes, but what does that do longer term to our total cost of ownership, the total cost of the implementation, either because we had to fix things that went wrong in the implementation in the first time, or what's even more costly is when you have this operational disruption where, yep, we went live, but we couldn't ship product. We couldn't close the books. We couldn't invoice customers. Um, we couldn't collect cash, whatever, you know, whatever the problem statement is, a lot of organizations run into that sort of, of challenge. And in fact, uh, in our research over the years, and this actually goes back uh, over a decade, we've managed this or we've measured this one metric of what is the operational disruption and just over 50%, between 51 and 54%, it's always fallen in that range every year we conducted the study, um, just over half experience some sort of material operational disruption, not just your usual, you know, it was a little bit harder than we thought, or it took us a little bit of time to get used to the new system. We're not talking about that. We're talking about we couldn't ship product. We couldn't close the books. There's some major disruption to our business and, and half of organizations are facing that problem when they go live with new technology. And when you look at what the impact to the overall total cost is or, or how much that operational disruption costs relative to the cost of the actual implementation itself, usually when there is that sort of operational disruption, those costs will dwarf the cost of the implementation itself. So, you know, I, I think back to early in my career, one of the first, um, one of the first projects that um, I had managed from soup to nuts, you know, from selection all the way through implementation was for a, a, a mid-sized manufacturer uh, in the U.S. and they they had European operations as well. So a multinational mid-sized organization, manufacturer of uh, cut um, of engineer order or make to order uh, types of, of products. Um, they made um, pressure gauges and and uh, pressure gauges for like oil uh, oil pipelines and gas pipelines and water mains and things like that. And they so they had implemented a manufacturing ERP solution. Um, I remember that 
there's a couple decision points along the way where we had decided to, um, or we had recommended that they push out the go live because they had decided to do a bunch of customization to address some of the unique factors of their business. And that was pushing the timeline out. And I remember there was, it was down to the, it was the second, the second time the go live had been shifted. It had already been shifted two times and there was, we were recommending a third shift by 30 days to push it out 30 days to, to make sure we had time to finish the testing and to get through the, um, you know, the, the wrinkles in the system that they were deploying. And the CEO, I still remember the CEO said, look, we've got to cut our losses. We've got to stop the bleeding. This is taking too long, taking too much time and money. We need to, we need to just go live. And, you know, of course we recommended, okay, we don't recommend you do that. Here are the risks just to make sure you're, you're aware of the risks. And they said, okay, we get it, but we still want to go live. So long story short, we helped them through the, through the go live. And, uh, it was a, it was a mess. They, they went live. And they, at the end of the day, they lost so many customer orders that for, there were about a hundred million US dollar company in annual revenue. They had lost. And when I say lost, I don't mean like it just took them a little bit longer to fill the order or um, they had to delay these orders. They actually lost uh, $10 million, over $10 million of orders um, in those first two to three months after you go live. And so you look at the cost, you know, take the, the profit margin on whatever that $10 million of sales was, call it, you know, one or two million. Um, in, in lost profit, you compare that to the what was going to be about, if I remember correctly, somewhere between sixty and seventy thousand dollars it would have cost to extend the go live that extra thirty days to go through the diligence and the testing. So they made that trade off or that conscious decision that we want to save that sixty or seventy thousand dollars. So they did do that. They they gained that sixty or seventy thousand dollars, but they lost however many millions of dollars in profit on that. We lost ten million dollars in sales. So that's the way you kind of have to think about this is it's never an easy answer and there's never a good answer when you get into those types of situations, but you do want to make sure you have a clear understanding of what the real impact is uh, to, to the organization and the real cost as well. And then, uh, you know, the variables that had the strong, strongest impact on operational disruption, just in case you can't read the, the box on the right there, um, the biggest variables were uh, clarity of business processes, um, those that have tighter better defined processes tended to have less operational disruption. Um, those that invested in change management tended to have less operational disruption. Those that had alignment among the executives and key stakeholders had less disruption, um, as did those that spent time and effort um, on the user acceptance testing and conference room pilots and making sure they almost over invested in that process to make sure they worked out all the, all the kinks and the wrinkles. And again, there's a big difference between the technology working and the system integrator delivering a working system from a technical perspective versus one that actually works for your business and it, it can actually function within your business. Those are two very different things oftentimes. Yeah, and Eric, it looks like we have some questions specifically on budgeting for organizational change management. Can you talk about how um, you might do that within this process? Sure. We, we get that question a lot and that, that's a tough one to answer because I don't have a, I don't have a, a hard and fast metric. Uh, typically, what we do is we'll go in and do an, an organizational assessment to figure out, you know, what what is the culture of the organization, um, how big is the change? Because obviously, if it's a bigger change, that's going to require more organizational change management. Um, how quickly are you trying to make the change? Um, how will how willing and able and and uh, skilled are your people in in migrating to that change? Those are all things that affect the amount of time and money and efforts it's going to take to invest in change management. But a, a good metric that I've used, and I think I've seen this from, uh, I don't remember if it's Gardner or one of the big 
uh, industry analyst firms. I thought I'd seen in the past, and I've always had it in my mind for the last several years, it's somewhere between 15 and seven, 15 and 20% of the total budget should be invested in change management. And what you find is it's usually a tiny fraction of that. I mean, you're oftentimes you're lucky to get a couple, you know, a couple percentage points of a total budget on, on the overall implementation. Um, but what I would say though, you know, here's the other thing you hear post-mortem, you, you often hear clients complain about, you know, they spent too much, too much time and money on the project. Oftentimes it's, we spent too much time and money just trying to get the technology configured and customized and tested and all that stuff. But I've never heard a client say, yeah, we spent too, way too much money on change management. It's usually we should have spent more on that and less on the technology. So the, the more you can simplify some of the technology work streams and focus more on the human pieces, um, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather take, uh, you know, a, a underwhelming uh, technical solution, but have a really good change management solution. That's probably going to be a better bet than trying to swing for the fences on the technology side, but then under investing in the tech in the, uh, the human side. I would agree with that. The, the overall point here is to enable your business to function more effectively. And it's, it's a far better scenario to implement bad software very well than it is to inf implement very good software poorly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of what complicates that point, Adam, is that, you know, vendors and system integrators are, they're selling you on this vision of what their technology can do and how great the technology is. And, and back to Stuart's presentation and even mine at the very beginning of today, you kind of look long-term what things could be like 10 years from now. And then you try to cram that all into a, you know, 12 or 18 month implementation. It's, it's just not going to happen. So you've got to figure out how do we, how do we maybe back off those expectations and say, okay, that might be where we're going to be in 10 years, but in two years, we might just, be happy automating our, you know, getting some real simple GL and accounting software in place. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's a, you know, good risk reward trade-off there. And we've got two questions about defining processes, defining whether, judging whether or not processes are defined well enough. And then also with how important are edge cases in the process design. Um, those are kind of intertwined, I would say. And um, Eric, I'd be curious as to um, what, what your thoughts are here too, but from a perspective of defining your current state, uh, before your implementations, not, not quite as necessary as the detail that you get into in defining your processes uh, in the implementation. And every possible scenario should be accommodated in a system or known that it's not going to be in the system from a, um, if you, you can call them edge cases, you can call them exceptions. Your ERP, you don't choose one and implement it for the happy path in your business processes. So having everything down to the to the nittiest grittiest detail is really important to being successful in your implementation on the whole and not just creating it in that space, but also implementing it down to that and testing it down to that space with real data is really how you get to, to the point of the most uh, the highest degree of success in in your business processes and in going live and testing those edge cases with with, with real data knowing where some of them are, you, you're always going to have unknown unknowns that come up throughout the, the process, but knowing that you're getting everything and, and getting uh, coverage of the whole of your business is, an, is, is really critical to success because it's, it's very frequently the edge cases that cause the biggest breakages. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes those edge cases can bring the operations to its knees or 
depending on what it is or how customer facing it is, of course, but that's a good, a good point. And you're never going to cover every single exception or scenario. You know, there's always curveballs that you, you get in your day to day operations. But if they're known curveballs or known exceptions or things that, you know, are difficult or where you have some sort of unique workaround right now, I agree with you. you that's what's going to mess things up or, or uh, tangle things up when you when you get into a real world environment. And, you know, the question here about how do you know if the processes are defined enough? Um, I think Liam asked that question uh, around how do you know if they're defined enough? You know, the way I always think about it is, I'm not sure if you're, if anyone on the uh, conference here today is familiar with that level one through five methodology or nomenclature for business process definition. Um, but to simplify it, it's, you know, level, level one is sort of your macro process at a real high level. Level five is getting down to the real granular keystroke transactional workflows and then levels you know two through four kind of incrementally working their way down to, to level five level of detail but when you're evaluating so when you're evaluating technology usually you're kind of at that level one and two you know you're up at the macro level you're defining your business processes in a way that's helping you evaluate and choose the right technology that's the best fit you don't want to get down to level three four five because that's dependent on what technology you deploy um, but when you when you've selected the software and then you start moving into implementation, what ends up happening is the system integrator generally wants to dive straight down into level five. So they're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I build these workflows in the system and start training people on the workflows? But then you miss that middle part. So usually when we do the implementation readiness or that pre-implementation planning, we suggest getting a little bit deeper, maybe down to level two and three level of granularity, just so you have a, a pretty clear blueprint of how you want the technology to be deployed. And then you have better direction to give to your system integrator on, you know, kind of here's our roadmap or here's our blueprint for what we want. Now let's fill in the blanks of how the technology is going to fit within that. And let's reconcile where maybe the technology can't support that. Um, but at least then you have a, a clear blueprint for where you want to go. So I think that's an important step that gets missed more often than not. And that, that creates a level of misalignment too, because if you're, you know, your transactional workflows down here are working, but they're not aligned with those high level macro uh, business processes, you need to connect those dots and get them aligned in the middle there. Those are good, good questions. All right, we're going to take a quick break and uh, pick this up when we come back. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're in the middle of a presentation clip that we're playing uh, from Adam Cheatham and myself. So let's go ahead and jump back into the conversation. So with that being said, let's dive into what are those keys to transformation success? And there's actually eight of them that we'll, we'll cover. Um, 
And these are the sort of the, the high level themes that you may have picked up on or we may have alluded to throughout other presentations and some of this may be new. But the first thing to keep in mind or the first tip if we we're to summarize eight things for you know, sort of an executive level executive summary is that first of all, failure can be avoided, even though the statistics are pretty dismal, even though you know a lot of research shows that upwards of 80% of uh, transformations fail. Um, I just shared with you the statistic that over half of implementations suffer from, from some sort of material operational disruption. It may sound like it's sort of a lost cause. It's just, we're, we're doomed for failure. We're doomed for all this pain. And the reality is it's not true. I mean, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a surprise to most organizations that go through failure, but it ends up being a surprise because they're not well-educated. They've been misled by their system integrator or their vendor, or they just don't know any better. I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons why they're surprised by it, but they shouldn't be. If they, if they just educate themselves and understand lessons from others and understand what some of the key themes uh, for success are, then, then they will succeed. And, and usually you can tell by looking at a number of different criteria, you can sort of tell whether or not a project's gonna be a success or failure. Now, granted, not to say that there's never there's situations where there's never challenges every project has its challenges and tough points in the, in the project but usually you can tell those that are succeed versus the ones that fail based on what they're doing and, and a lot of those decisions are made early in the transformation uh, project so um, that's probably the first big takeaway there is to is to understand that piece of it the second thing is to start with a clear digital strategy um, it's it's easy to rush into the software selection and or the implementation, um, but you want to make sure you have a clear vision for what it is you're trying to accomplish with the project. Are you you know are you doing this just as a uh, technology upgrade? You know, per the, the earlier slide around digital transformation versus technology implementation. Are you know wh where are you on that continuum? So have a clear long term strategy and roadmap and understanding of what it is you're you're going to do to get to that long term. Uh, state of utopia that we were talking about earlier today. And again, if if you, that state of utopia is something that's 10 years out or five years out or whatever it is, don't try to make that leap all at once. Too many organizations just try to make that leap because they've been sold a vision that could be executed within, allegedly be executed within 12 to 18 months or whatever the number is. Um, but you need to be realistic about it and really understand incrementally how are we going to get there over the next however many years. And in, in this space, you also want to, in defining your digital strategy and, and the goals that you're trying to get from this, knowing which ones you need to, which ones are more urgent and which ones can uh, require a little bit of building um, is important. You know, the, the two examples I like to use in this space is, um, I, I don't know how many folks uh, that are on green screen technology were, it come to me with one of the first things that they ask for is, advanced business analytics advanced business intelligence and yes well, why did well why do you want this like well i can't pull a, pull my finance reports out of this green screen system so i need advanced technology to do this it, it, what you need is financial reporting uh, not advanced bi yet like let, let's see what it is comes out of the box as opposed to goes uh, going straight to the most advanced stuff because advanced bi is uh, yeah, it's very cool. It does a lot of things and will enable you to make great decisions for your business. Um, but without the the right uh, approach to it, you're, you could overpay significantly for advanced business intelligence for just needing to see, uh, just needing to close the books in less than four weeks. 
you know, or just needing to be able to pull your financial statements um, without having to take six different sources, pull them into Excel and manipulate them. That's not advanced business intelligence. That's financial reporting. That's something that uh, what we'd like to recommend is in that space, you you replace what's out of the what's there and what you need out of the box as close as possible, and then see if you need some of the more advanced technology or did you did you actually get what you needed out of things once you know more about what it is you're you're biting off? Uh, the other part of the this from a longer term perspective is things like MRP. I know Stuart was sharing the example with the Christmas trees, right? Um, MRP is an intelligent um, process that's predictive. It's based on demand planning. It has a lot of inputs, and for something to be uh, for MRP to be predictive. It needs data and your green screen data is going to be really hard for your MRP to really create a lot of value from. So if you're not running an MRP today or it's not advanced, uh, you may think about implementing that in a later phase um, as part of your digital strategy so that you have time to get new, accurate and, and very good data into your system. So then your MRP and demand planning modules can start making more predictive and effectively predictive uh, recommendations for purchasing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of reminds me of the the whole need to make sure you've got a clear understanding of what exactly you're getting. You know, is it, it there's there's a lot of buzzwords floating around, but just making sure you translate that into what it what it's going to mean to your organization, how it's going to fit within your organization, and and if it doesn't then you start, you have to ask yourself, well, why are we doing it? Just because they have this technology capability available to us doesn't mean we necessarily need to be de deploying it, or at least not now. And speaking of that, I, I, that's a good segue into this next point, which is to let business drive the technology. The most successful projects that we've seen are the ones where it wasn't just IT leading the charge. It was more of a business-focused uh, initiative. Even if it was the CIO or IT director as the executive sponsor, or even if you did have a technical project manager internally, you still had some sort of uh, strong business focus that treated IT more as an enabler of the business change rather than assuming that IT was going to define for the business how the technology was going to fit within the business. So. That's a really important point because a lot of times uh, we see a lot of businesses where the the operational side will assume that the IT guy or gal is just going to take care of this and the whole team on the IT side is going to take care of it and just tell us what you need and we'll we'll support you along the way. And really, it should be flipped around. It should be the business driving. This is what we need. This is how we want to define our processes. This is what we want to be when we grow up. Now, let's figure out how technology is going to fit into that rather than the other way around. And, and also, you want to make sure that the transformation is, is closely aligned with, with measurable goals and just overall objectives of the organization. You know, when we talk about organizational misalignment being a root cause of failure, a lot of times it's because the way we've defined a digital transformation isn't what it isn't consistent with what we're trying to accomplish as a business. So I'll, I'll just give you an example. A lot of times we see um, cases where the executive or the strategic goal is to you know standardize business processes to drive efficiency and to move toward more of a shared service model where we're consolidating functions and we're starting to act like you know one common business with one common operating model across multiple locations 
But then you get down to the digital transformation and the path of least resistance oftentimes is to not do that because that's painful to do those things. And so let's just sort of pave the cow paths and put technology in place in a way that's going to, um, in a way that's going to just enable the way we've always done things or the way we're doing things now. And not to open a whole nother can of worms or a Pandora's box here that we could probably create a whole session on this one comment or this one thread. But I think the whole agile movement has actually made this problem worse because now you, you know, now in the name of agile, we're just going to go start doing stuff. And I know I'm oversimplifying. I'm probably offending a certain number of people in the audience today, but that's not the intent. The intent here is to look more strategically at, you know, yes, we can go execute from an agile perspective, but when it comes to defining and planning what we want to be when we grow up and what our processes should look like, that just takes time. And, and agile runs counter to that. Agile says, don't spend a lot of time up front doing that. Just go build stuff and get a minimum viable product. And, and, you know, let's just start making some progress and getting some quick wins. Well, okay, we can get a lot of quick wins along the way, but we could be going in the totally wrong direction and getting quick wins along the way. So we've got to make sure we're going the right direction. And, and we have that that alignment with the overall the overall strategy so just some food for thought as you think about how you know how are we going to treat this project how are we going to plan for it what's our strategy how are we going to put together the plan all that good stuff the other uh, another thread here is to set realistic expectations uh, i mentioned before in the last session or the first session from today that unrealistic expectations are often the root causes of, of problems later on um, and again the the phenomena we see or the dynamic we see in place there is that you you box in your project with some unrealistic assumptions. You assume it's going to take less time and resources, and you assume it's going to be less risky than it really is going to be. And then you get into the implementation after everyone's on, on board with that, those assumptions, you get into the project or halfway through the project and, and realize that this isn't going to work. This isn't, this was never realistic to begin with. And now we need more time and money, or we have to dramatically cut scope or cut corners just to be able to fit within this, you know, flawed budget and timeline. So that's the, uh, that's the, that's the big thing that, that we've got to uh, keep in mind is that you, you want to have those realistic expectations. And, and the biggest word of advice I can give is that last bullet there, which is when you get proposals from vendors, you don't want to distrust them, but you also want to ask a lot of questions like how in the world are we going to, you know, migrate all of our data in a week or whatever the assumption might be in, the, in their plan or in their proposal. And also look for things that aren't in their proposal that are important to the success of the project and should be built into your overall plan. So if you think of it as a, you know, an overall program plan that you're managing, the technical implementer, the system integrator, or the vendor is just one part of that. So to, to, um, to put all your eggs in that one basket to say whatever proposal they give me, that's what I'm going to budget on. That's that's flawed from the start, even if they're not being overly optimistic because they haven't included all the other things that you're responsible for. So you're probably going to be responsible for data migration. You're probably going to be responsible for change management. You're probably going to be responsible for defining your business processes, for you know integrating to third-party systems. These are all things that are super critical to the project, but they typically don't build that into their plans and or if they have it's very superficial very you know, tertiary at best and add to that the fact that usually they're overly optimistic on their own work stream and you can see how quickly you're going to end up with the unrealistic set of expectations if you don't ask the tough tough questions and if you don't have the people unbiased agnostic people helping you that can help identify where those gaps are and where the you know dose of reality needs to be added 
And, and to elaborate on that a, a, a bit more, I think that there's a from a vendor perspective, and um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, conversations that we have on this that um, you know we should we should give them some credit. They they don't they know what their system can do, and there's a compromise confirmation bias in that. They've seen their system do all kinds of things. They know it can do just about anything, but that doesn't mean that they know that uh, that it can do it well or better than anybody else's or without the uh, uh, significant degree of customization or that just because they think it can happen doesn't always mean that it can in that system in that way either. So that confirmation bias is really part of what causes a lot of those problems, in my opinion. And from a perspective of the, uh, you know, taking things with a grain of salt and setting real expect, uh, realistic expectations, you know, for Rajan's question on artificial intelligence um, and, and ERP versus built-in products or, or uh, other tools like Power BI, what are, what are your expectations? You know, the answer to which is better is what's what's the better fit for you. You know, if your expectations are that it is going to do quite a lot of um, AI based uh, number crunching and decision making for you, then Power BI is not going to be able to handle that. But if it's something that is more aligned towards the business and the intelligence skill sets, key performance indicators, you know, maybe a smaller software package is, is realistic, you know, so think about your needs and how it is these your expectations are set and what it is you're looking for software to do to meet those needs yeah really really good points and uh yeah couldn't agree couldn't agree more with you um i also like richard richard's comment here i, I think i mentioned something about a grain of salt and he said grain uh question mark or big pile uh, and, and that is a way to look at it i know you, you might be half kidding on that comment but you do have to um, you know, you, you have to accept accept it for what it is when you get these proposals and these these proposed budgets and timelines is they're they're trying to make a sale and you know that's just human nature. Even if you assume the best in people, you have to assume that the human nature is they want to make the sale and they're not gonna um, they're not gonna risk alarming you customer. All right, we're gonna take a quick break and uh, pick this up when we come back. But first let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more transformation ground control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're in the middle of a presentation clip that we're playing uh, from Adam Cheatham and myself. So let's go ahead and jump back into the conversation. So another uh, point here is that implementation is more important than selection. That's one of the big findings we, we see with clients. It's easy to get overwhelmed with all the options out there. It's easy to get caught up in analysis paralysis. We see it all the time. 
um, especially when you get more stakeholders involved. And, you know, on one hand, from a change management and buy-in perspective, you want people to be involved in the decision and the evaluation process. But on the other hand, that complicates things. That can slow down the decision-making process because you're never going to get all of your questions answered. You're never going to feel 100% comfortable with whatever solution or solutions you end up uh, wanting to go with. And so you, you really have to find that balance between, yeah, we want buy-in, we want to do our due diligence, but we also don't want to spend way too much time and money uh, thinking through this stuff. Um, because what ends up happening a lot of times is that, uh, again, the analysis paralysis sets in and you reach a point of diminishing returns where you're never going to be fully confident and comfortable. And now we're just wasting time and money that we could be spending on the actual implementation. So if we view resources as being finite, which it is for most organizations, you really have to think about Okay, every day and week and month that we go on without a decision or that we spend trying to overanalyze, overthink a process or worse yet, evaluate systems that we shouldn't have been evaluating in the first place because it's just not a good fit. It doesn't, you know, there's key requirements that we have that isn't going to be met by this technology. So why are we spending our time evaluating it? That ends up happening a lot, too. So the quicker you can get through an, an educated and agnostic and informed evaluation and get to a decision and then start to really focus and double down on the implementation itself. Um, that's going to serve you a lot better. Uh, if you can uh, have a, a really strong implementation on a subpar software, that's going to be a much better bet than having 100% confidence that you found the perfect technology, but then now you don't have enough time and money to, to implement it appropriately. And on that, I would say that your selection, if, if, as long as your selection is enabling your your implementation on the whole, where you're really starting to think future state and prepare for your implementation and treat it almost like a an extension of your readiness phase that's really the best way to use a software selection so that you're really getting a lot out of what it is you're doing to select the system but it's not just focused for the, on the sheer purpose of just determining whether or not you should go with one versus another but is also gaining some uh some additional value in the in the way that you'll be more re more ready to start people will be engaged your processes can be a bit more uh, well defined uh, if, if you're really going to go big in the selection phase you know it's it is more important to implement well than select well but you should also consider that you can really get some some great synergy on your readiness uh, activities and using your selection phase to be a, a double-edged tool for you. Yeah, that's a great point. You don't have to necessarily wait until you get through the selection to then think about change management or then think about oh, yeah. rollout strategy and all that stuff. Well, so many of the change management tactics, data, uh, process improvements, you don't need software for those. You know, yeah. and you, you can evaluate that and get that in place. And it will make your implementation go far more smooth, uh, far more smoothly, and and you'll start reaping benefits earlier as well. Yeah, absolutely. You knock out some of those critical paths activities sooner. Uh, I think we've hit this point several times throughout multiple presentations today, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But there's there's no silver bullets. Watch out for the silver bullets. Be leery of it. Be skeptical. Um, sometimes I feel like uh, that old Saturday Night Live skit with Debbie Downer, where she, you know, someone, someone will be talking about how they had a great time at Disneyland or whatever, and then she steps in and starts complaining about the the risk of going on amusement park rides and stuff like that. If you haven't seen the, if you haven't seen the skit, that's the the gist of Debbie Downer, 
and they do it in a lighthearted way, but you kind of have to act like Debbie Downer when it comes to the the over optimism that comes at you from the the software vendors and system integrators. And that you know healthy dose of skepticism will will serve you well just to you know not not assume that just because the technology is great that it's going to be easy. Uh, probably the best example is uh, cloud uh, cloud deployments. I mean that I think that's one of the most oversold movements in the industry, even though the whole industry, as we talked about before, is moving to the cloud. And I'm not disputing the the benefit of the cloud, but where what I am disputing is this uh, whole notion that cloud deployments are somehow easier, they're cheaper, they're faster, because they're just simply not. If anything, the way cloud deployments have been going recently with some of these uh, relatively immature cloud solutions being rolled out to organizations by really big software vendors, um, it's actually complicating things more to where, you know, I would argue it could potentially be increasing time and cost for, for transformation. So, you know, really watch out for that silver bullet mentality, which is, you know, it's what we all want to hear, you know, so it's understandable. I, I want to hear that there's an easy button out there. I want to hear that a cloud solution is super easy to deploy. I want to hear that my people aren't going to resist this change and that they're just going to love this technology. That's all stuff I want to hear. But what I want to hear versus reality or are oftentimes very different when it comes to these transformations. And probably the most important thing is that, you know, even if even if you assume the technology itself is easier to deploy for whatever reason, we still haven't addressed the really big problem, which is the people and process side of the equation. Those are always the the toughest part, the toughest parts, I should say. Sometimes faster is not better on that. Ah, there you go. <laughs> so actually we you can go to the next one. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. I won't, I won't steal too much of your thunder on this, but um, sometimes faster is more expensive um, and, and you rush into creating more problems than than solving them by moving more quickly. So um, I'll, I'll back off for a second here for you to get to the slide, Eric. No, that's perfect. You're more than welcome to steal, steal my thunder anytime. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you hit the point here that it's, uh, you know, you don't, some I think there's a there's a fine line here between going fast and being aggressive in your implementation or in your overall project. You can do that if you have a solid plan and you're aligned and you've got clear direction. The problem is too often you you run into this dynamic where we've selected the software, we've signed the contract, the vendors and the system integrators are pressuring us now to bring on the army of people to help them start deploying to help you start deploying the technology. And add that to the fact that this there's a lot of excitement internally around this decision. Usually momentum's the highest right at the end of the selection phase, right? When you've decided that this is a path forward, that's about as high as mo as momentum's gonna ever be in a project. And that's about as high as morale is gonna be on your project team. And I hate to say it, but that's typically true. And then from then, you know, then it starts to drop once you start to get it into the headwinds and into the weeds of the the, you know, what the change actually means and all the nuances that go to go in with it. So that dynamic oftentimes leads organizations because they've got so much momentum, people are excited about this new path forward, vendor and system integrator are pressuring you to get started right away. It leads to this phenomena where we end up bringing in a ton of consultants that are there ready to start building stuff, but we're still trying to figure out, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? What are we, what are our processes gonna be? What are we consolidating? What are we standardizing? What are we not? And while you're making those decisions, the meter is running, you're paying for that time for the consultants to be sitting there waiting for you to decide. So you really want to take a couple steps back to take many steps forward and, and to be able to move faster later by getting that clear definition of plan in, in place. To your, to your point, Adam, faster isn't always better, but sometimes you have to start off slow to be able to go faster later. And overall, that can be the faster and cheaper approach. 
when it takes time for the system integrator to get their team on board too, right? So um, one of the, the biggest challenges is that sales handoff. Um, the folks that you've been talking to most of the time, I mean, you might have one or two technical resources that have, that, have, that you've been talking to, but those you're talking you've been talking to the sales guys the whole time, and that handoff takes time. And you know, there's a there's an, an embedded assumption that because I told the sales guy, everybody at the organization knows what I told them is my most important thing, um, and it takes time for that message to sink in across uh, uh, across your implementation team, your system integrators, and, and for them to get up and running so that. Your technical resources understand your business. That there's that that knowledge handoff, and trying to rush that part of the present uh, the implementation from a planning perspective can really start putting people in spots where they're expected to know more than they should yet. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And then finally, as a uh, preview of the next session. Uh, the most important thing is, is organizational change management. The, the people side of the equation, uh, your project will fail without it. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen a project succeed that didn't invest really heavily in change management. And uh, even the cases that I've been involved with or that we've been involved with as a team where they have invested heavily in change management, it, there's, there's typically more you could be doing to be doing a better job in that area. Um, and it, it really comes down to understanding what exactly change management is and that again, that's the topic for the next discussion. I just realized, Kyler, I'm, we're way over on time, so I apologize. We're throwing off your schedule here, but um, the just at a high level, I think the one thing I'd say, um, short of getting into the details that we'll cover in the next session, is that change management is a lot more than just training and communications. If your system integrator, or your vendor is probably going to suggest a certain amount of uh, you know communication and training type of activities, which is great, but that is just scratching the surface and that's stuff that's way downstream. You need to be doing change management from day one. And that includes things like organizational design, uh, the organizational readiness, the change impact analysis, and really targeting the communications along the way, not just what are we doing with this project and uh, not just when are we gonna get trained on the new system, that stuff's important, but what's more important is how is this project gonna affect me and my job? And, how how is it compared to the way I do things today, and how are you going to help me understand that and get to that that point? What ends up happening too often is that you get to the training uh, workshops, you know, in in class training or whatever it is, and people have their freak out moments in the training. You know, they should be having those freak out moments way earlier in the process, so you can work through it and work through those kinks, so that by the time you get to end user training, it's more of a formality of okay, I already understand that my job's changing, and I understand why, and I've already, I've already freaked out. Now you're just going to show me how to do it in the new system. So uh, I'm oversimplifying, but that's sort of the, the general dynamic that we often see with change management. So make sure you have a real solid investment in change management. All right. So we're going to unpack some of that stuff we just talked about here that Adam and I talked about as it relates to executive strategy and digital strategy. But first, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. So for all you listeners of Transformation Ground Control, I wanted to remind you of a premier annual event that we host every year. It's called Digital Stratosphere. It's a virtual conference that we've actually shifted to virtual since the pandemic. And we're having our next Digital Stratosphere conference online virtually uh, February 8th through the 10th. So I encourage you to register for that. 
We're going to, myself and others from the third stage team will be hosting sessions, facilitating sessions about software selection, how to implement software, what some of the best practices are, change management, digital strategy, program management, all the stuff you need to know to make your digital transformation successful in 2022 and beyond. This event's for you. Registration's free. We encourage you and your teams to join. Um, if you're not able to join us live, which we hope you will, but if you can't join us live, we'll also have, uh, we'll make the recordings available to you. So be sure to register either way. Even if you can't join all the sessions live, you'll at least get access to the library of recordings. So I encourage you to check that out. There's a link below in this podcast, wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, there's a link below to register. And you can also just go to our website at Third Stage, and it's spelled T-H-I-R-D stage dash consulting.com at the top of the page you'll see an icon for registering for digital stratosphere so be sure to check it out digital stratosphere february 8th through 10th hope to see you there hello and welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 53 we just had adam cheatham and myself uh, a clip that we played of he and i presenting at stratosphere 2021 and again, just as a quick reminder, you can register for Stratosphere 2022, which is February 8th through the 10th. You can go to stratosphere2022.com to see the agenda and register. There's no cost. It's a virtual event. It's live. You'll get the recordings. So a lot of good reasons to to uh, check it out. It's three full days of content as well. Kyler and I will be there. Adam will be there. Uh, Marcus, who was on the show earlier today, will be there as well as several other speakers as well. So be sure to check that out at stratosphere2022.com. Um but uh, in the meantime, what, what were some of your takeaways from that, uh, that presentation? I know you've seen it before. This isn't the first time you've seen it or heard it, but uh, what, what were some of your takeaways from that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious as to, is this, when you put together kind of the executive summary or when you start with specifically the, one of the first steps is strategic alignment and you go in and you, you have kind of that, that boot camp format, that conversation with the executives to secure that alignment. Does the alignment ever slip or how do you make sure that you're constantly holding that alignment in place when you're, say, six weeks into the project and we kind of forgot, you know, what our overall goals are? We may have them documented. We may have had a great whiteboard session about what they are. But how do you make sure you're still kind of attaching your work to the overall strategic alignment that you secured within kind of these first steps? Well, there's a couple of different ways. First of all, through the sort of general project governance of having a regular cadence of executive steering committee and executive touch points, uh, whether it be formal project readouts and discussion about risk and how we're tracking and with budget and time and where the risks are, what our risk mitigation strategy is, how we're doing with resourcing, all that stuff so that not only so the executives are aware, but also so that you can stay aligned with the executives. Um, that's one way. The other way that's, I think, even more powerful than the, the sort of the project governance, project status-based approach to keeping executives involved or up to speed with what's going on with the project is the decision framework that you have in place as part of your overall project governance. So in other words, you want to make sure you look at your digital transformation and make sure you have key milestones and checkpoints with the executive team to where they have to sort of bless uh, the next step. Uh, they have to approve a certain deliverable or they have to decide whether or not it's time to go to the next step and sort of put the ownership on them. You know, certainly as a project team, as outside consultants, you, you're going to make your recommendations of what you think, but ultimately they need to be the ones to decide on what those next steps are. 
And also by making them part of the decision process, that's a good collaborative way to make sure that, for example, if we finish the design phase of the project and we've designed, we've defined all of our detailed business processes and workflows, we should be having the executive team sort of sign off on those processes to make sure that's consistent with their vision of what they want the future state to look like. Um, because this is not just a technology deployment or shouldn't just be a technology deployment, we need to make sure that the executives are actively involved in that. So those are the two best ways I can think of to do that. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like there's multiple places within the project that you almost use them as a approval resource. Like you already kind of know that that's right because you've worked with the specific teams and departments and understand that's the best choice. But to keep them engaged, you continue to just involve them in, in kind of every piece of, of the overall project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it it also mitigates that risk of the executives that might view this as something they should just delegate or abdicate to other team members. I mean, they really have to, you really have to push your executive team to roll up their sleeves and be a part of the project. They don't need to be involved, you know, obviously in day-to-day testing of software and, you know, configuration and definition of requirements and stuff like that, but they should be involved in key milestones and touch points so that they're part of the process and they can redirect and help pivot where we're needed. Absolutely. And and backing up to that kind of establishment of the business processes, when you talk about obviously software evaluation and, and we, we look at um, business intelligence, all of those things kind of wrapped up together, they involve workshops, right? Like you touched on um, a lot of times. And so we saw a lot of businesses at our April 2021 event that were kind of holding on doing those digital transformation exercises because of the COVID-19 pandemic in hopes like, hey, you know, we want to do this in person with our consultants because it's the only way we know how to explain them our business processes and and get their information. But there's a lot of other businesses that are really, um, you know, risk adverse to that. You know, they don't want to have that disruption. So I, I wonder if you could give us some insight as to how you and the team have still facilitated those and make sure that you're moving forward with digital transformation projects um, in kind of a hybrid environment. How do you evaluate that? Um, and how do you work with your clients and teams on that? Well, it's, it's certainly it's certainly harder to do more, more of that ad hoc uh, collaboration that you might see uh, during a typical di- digital transformation in a, in a non-pandemic time. Um, so for example, pre-pandemic, most clients would have a you know, a project war room set up where they'd have a bunch of uh, workspaces in one room where the project team's working, they can do testing together, they can uh, work on training materials together. And it's sort of that real-time collaboration. That's harder to do remotely if you if you do have people that are remote, or even if it's not because of the pandemic and it's because you're a global company and you've got teams dispersed throughout the world, you have to figure this out as well. So it, it is a challenge I don't think really goes away with the pandemic, but um, it becomes less common with the pandemic for sure. Um, but you, you just have to f- make sure, you know, the project management, the day-to-day project management becomes that much more important because you, you have to schedule meetings. You have to schedule those collaborative times that might have just more organically happened in your war room in the past. Um, we have some clients where they'll set up sort of a, a Microsoft Teams or a Zoom-based war room of sorts where it's just open. They're in there collaborating. They're doing their thing. Um, and, and that can be um, effective as well. Um, but I would say, you know, I would challenge and I typically do challenge digital transformation teams to really think about, you know, where are the selective points where you can have those in-person touch points, um, obviously being safe or following whatever protocols your, your company or your country uh, regulations might, um, might uh, 
impose on you, um, you want to make sure you have those touch points at some point, because I think those, those in-person human interactions are, are critical. I, and I don't think that necessarily goes away just because we have technology to do meetings now. Yeah. And, and not at all that I'm holding a grudge, but my husband, who's on um, you know the executive team here at Third Stage, had to go to Aruba to quarantine for five days. And that was really, really uh-huh. rough for him. So, you know, I really- Is he okay? Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. He was, you know, sent me a, a picture on a fishing boat. Oh, no. it's He was super sad, was... huh? <laughs> no. He seemed- But he, I will- I just talked to him earlier today. He seems, he seems okay now. Oh, good. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it sounds like Third Stage has kind of taken that um, need evaluation for clients. Like, really, what do you need as a business? And you've evolved to be able to present workshops in person, to present deliverables in person, or in a hybrid environment, or in a full-on digital virtual environment, if that's what is best for the client. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you kind of have to do what what fits your culture and what you know what your mo or your your uh, sort of day to day procedures are. Absolutely. And and kind of building on that, we talked a little bit about this with Marcus, um, and we talked a lot about this at Stratosphere um, 2021. We had a whole panel on managing a remote workforce. So when we talk about the need for things like organizational change management, which was also, you know, a main tactic within this conversation, and, you know, we haven't said it all episodes, so, you know, we're nearing the end, you know, so it's crunch time. Right. Um, But how do you, how do you go about creating a plan um, because it used to be kind of, it it needed to attach to the business, right? The organizational change management through assessments. Is it different when you now have to kind of understand and almost consume what the culture is in a remote environment? Yeah, it's a great point. I was actually thinking of that when you were talking about the, the uh, remote project teams. That is the part that's hardest, especially these consultants uh, who are trying to help facilitate a transformation that aligns with an organization's culture, both who they are today and where they, where they want that culture to go in the future. It's really hard to do over Zoom. You, you can pick it up on Zoom or over Microsoft Teams, but it's being there in person and getting a, a, a look and feel for an organization is, is super critical in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so are you planning on um, going about uh, producing an additional kind of version of your executive summary? within your um, your kind of kickoff on day one about digital transformation in the 2020s? I feel like that's not a question. I feel like you're sort of telling me I maybe I should do that. So I guess the answer is yes. Jedi mind trick type of thing. <laughs> exactly. So you're My saying I should be. <laughs> you know, I just wonder, I think for me, um, this was such a great actionable um, presentation that gave us like literal tactics that you walked us through on the slide. And I wondered if knowing the agenda and the speakers for our 2022 event, if you could kind of give our audience some insight and in some talks that might be a good one to attend, if that's really what you're you're looking for. Yeah. So I think certainly the um, the executive summary of, of trends in the 2020s is a good one. That's the keynote that I do on on the first day. Um, there's certainly the um, you know, the sessions around change management, I think, are particularly good. Uh, and uh, those are uh, important ones to cover. Uh, Marcus Harris, his, his uh, overview of some of the legal um, aspects of transformation is very good. Also, you mentioned Brad Feeks earlier, uh, Estes Group. Brad Feeks is the president of Estes Group. 
He's been on this podcast a couple of times in the past. He'll be a keynote speaker at um, Stratosphere and he'll talk about sort of cloud cybersecurity managed services. So that um, is, is a good one too, especially as more organizations are making that transition to the cloud and to, to away from on-prem and physical infrastructure internally, you know, to, to more of an outsource model. Um, so those are just a few that come to mind. I, in my opinion, I think they're all good. I'm very biased. I'll be completely candid because you and I create the agenda. So we've got our fingerprints all over and that's what we think are the best sessions. And that's why we picked them. So I'm going to be biased, but that those are some of the ones that sort of stand out as really important ones. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I could just add to that list, you know, we could just mention all of them on here, but we do have a business intelligence panel, which, um, is very interesting because our panelists are Brian Lacaruba, who is, um, you know, uh, a manager here at Third Stage and has been at Third Stage. I think he is the longest standing, you know, um, consultant on our team. And he's very matter of fact to the point. And purposely, I coupled him with Teresa Richardson, who we heard from our live stream, who will take us through business processes. Um, and she is very kind of holistic and focused on organizational change management. So if you want some, some specific tactics on how do you attach the very analytical to more of the human behavior side, that will be a very, very interesting panel. And then another new um, session we have this, this time is establishing your target operating model. And they actually go through process in, in making sure that you're establishing the right steps and it's being most effective. So those are two, if you're really looking for those tactical best practices to pull out, those are our two delivery teams um, that actually do that day to day. So just some additional ones there, but thank you for, um, you know, kind of giving us the, the relevancy of, of this topic as it is still very extremely relevant today, even in our, our world of uncertainty um, and taking us through that. And I, I'm excited to hear kind of your, your, um, revitalization version of it. Um, revitalization, is that a word? Revitalization. Uh, it's like, <laughs> it's like strategy. It's not really a word, but you kind of know what it means. <laughs> but it should be. No. Yeah, it should be a word. <laughs> right. Right. Um, for um, Stratosphere. And, and just a reminder that it's happening on February 8th through the 10th of 2022. Um, it's the three day event, fully free this year. Um, and we have a packed full agenda if you want to head over to Stratosphere. 2022.com to view our agenda and go ahead and secure your spot and register. If you do register, the sooner the better, so you can get all of the pre-event communication um, and some very exclusive content from our sponsors as well. Great, yeah. And uh, since you've you've assigned me the task of revitalizing uh, my presentation for this event, I be, we better wrap up this podcast so I can get to work. Yeah, we better. You got to get to work, man. I know there's not not a lot of time until uh, <laughs> here in a few days, so. Uh, well, well, good. Well, thanks for being here again. As always, Kyler, thanks for the great conversation. Thanks to the audience for uh, being part of this podcast. And again, you mentioned it earlier in the show, but every Tuesday at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, we do a live stream of one of the interviews that you hear in this podcast, and then we sort of repurpose it and package it into this this full podcast episode. But if you ever want to be part of that live audience and that live stream, uh, join us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, every Tuesday, 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern time, if that time works for you, depending on where in the world you are. So, and if not, you can always, you always pick it up here uh, when we put out the, the new episodes of this podcast. So uh, thank you again, everyone, for being here. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control and hope you have a great day and a great week in the meantime. Take care. Mm -hmm.